Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. OJ, it's time again. How you doing? Uh, you just tell them at my house. I know they're all over the place with guns. And they're, stuff. they're not going to do let it. them know I'm not coming there to hurt any of them. Okay, they know that, and they don't want to hurt you. You going to go to the house? That's why I told you we weren't. You know, you just let them all know. You let the police know. You let them all know. I wasn't running. I know you I weren't running. To to, I know you I weren't running. I was trying to go to Nicole's grave. I know you weren't running. Now I, I know you weren't, man, but you got everybody scared. Yeah. You got us all scared with a gun, man. Uh, and I'm sorry I made the police look bad by not no. showing up. Hey, we don't care. That's that's not a problem. You know what? You know what? You know what the, the important thing is here is that you don't hurt everybody and break their hearts. I'm not gonna hurt anybody. You're gonna break somebody's heart. Is what you're I gonna know, do. If I hurt somebody, I'm not gonna hurt. And anybody. I'm I'm talking your mother and I'm talking your kids. Don't do this. Listen, you've been a man all your life. Uh, no, don't stop now, OJ. Don't give in now. Uh, Juice, don't give in now. You've been a man all your life. You're admired. Don't give it up. You're listening to me. You're thinking. I know you're thinking. Oh. You're tired, too, aren't you? Huh? I'm so tired. I know. I know. I just want to be with Nicole. You don't need to be with Nicole. You need to be with your family and with your kids. You don't need to be with Nicole. Uh. All right? That doesn't need to be done now. You need your, your kids, and your kids need you. Don't do this to them. You're hurting everybody, man. Uh, You're being selfish with your kids, man. Don't do it. When did you see the kids last year? They see pull me in my driveway. I know. I see you. I see you. Please, toss the gun. Uh, Juice, just toss it. Come on, uh, man. Just toss it, please. All right? Juice, just, just toss the gun. All right, who is that out there? All right, just toss it, Juice. He's just trying to help. He's just trying to help, man. He's just trying to help. Juice, come on, just toss it. It's okay. Hey. No, don't, no. Hey, man, don't. No, don't. Juice. Juice, come on. Juice. Juice, are you there? Hey. Pick it up, Juice. Juice, I'm still here. Juice. Juice, don't do it. Juice. Hey. Juice, pick it up. Pick it up. OJ, pick it up. Listen to him. O.J., listen to him. O.J., listen to him. Listen to him. Please, O.J., come on. Toss it. Officers or uniformed men came up and pulled him away. Flashing lights on both sides, and we are right here at a, at a standoff. Again, it, it just seems perfectly clear that Cowling wants everybody to be calm.
Just going to ask everybody to be quiet for a moment. We have on the phone with us as well Robert Higgins, who lives in the neighborhood and is on the ground and can see inside the van. Mr. Higgins. Uh, yes, uh, how are you? Uh, just about as tense as you are, sir. Oh, my Lord, this is quite tense. What can you see? Oh, what I'm looking at right now is I'm looking at the van and I see O.J. kind of slouching down, looking very, very upset. Now, looking here, he look very upset. I don't know what he gonna be doing. Can you can you can you see him doing anything specific? Is he merely sitting there? He is just uh, sitting around, you know, just uh, looking like he'd be very nervous. Can you hear anything, Mr. Higgins? It's just too much commotion. I be in the back of a news van, so I can't really hear that good, but I can see it all. And I see O.J. I see O.J. Man, and he looks scared. And I would be scared because there's cops all deep in this. Thank you, Mr. Higgins. And Baba Booey to y'all. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade, the black O.J. Simpson. In for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday. December 17, 2020. So I have been told. This is our book club session number four. Jeffrey Tubin, Zoom Bomber of the Year. The Run of His Life. The People versus O.J. Simpson. Uh, last week we ended with the conclusion to the infamous June 1994 Bronco Chase. Uh, We just heard the audio of some of the police uh, exchange between O.J. Simpson and the LAPD while he was in the Bronco. I had not heard that uh, before the past couple days as we've been uh, researching the book and uh, I, I thought it was poignant. Um, unless it's been doctor, there's a lot of rumor and, you know, false allegations, manufactured evidence, all those uh, allegations around this case. But uh, I think that is legit. Uh, I had not heard that before. And I uh, just thought that was something uh, folks can evaluate. If you think uh, that is the sound of a black male who has just murdered his ex white wife and a white man, uh, and is, you know, trying to evade uh, capture and justice for it. Or if this sounds like uh, a black male victim of white supremacy who is innocent uh, and is now being charged with a double murder of a white woman, his ex-wife and a white man in a house where his children were sleeping. And then the whole world thinks he did it. One of the two, I guess, has to be true. Doesn't seem like it's much wiggle room. Uh, I will only point out before we get started the FX series that I did not watch in 2016 that this book is based on. Jeffrey Tubin was a consultant for that project. Uh, I didn't watch it until we got ready to, to read this book. And wow, it has been amazing. The more I learn about this case, the more dangerous that project is. I'll try to point out discrepancies as we go one difference and you would think it's something small you can be the judge that prank call that one of our investors alerted us to last week uh, that happened in the midst uh, of the OJ Simpson Bronco fiasco uh, that fake call you heard it right 
in the FX series, they do have a prank call, but it is not during the Bronco chase, which takes up the entire second episode. So, I mean, they could have included a lot of, you know, things in that episode because they devoted so much time just to the Bronco chase. They have the prank call in the third episode, which shows Johnny Cochran preparing to come on to the defense team. He gets a prank call from somebody pretending to be O.J. Simpson, and then he gets upset and throws the phone down. You might think, yeah, that's just, you know, dramatic license. It's not a documentary. No big deal. You get the prank call in. But I'd say that's that is a difference. You as opposed to portraying the prank call during the live uh, feed as it happened infamously, you have it so that he can make fun of Johnny Cochran, which is something it seems many white people enjoy doing. Just I'll try to point out because that, like I said, that's a small one. There are larger discrepancies as we go, but we'll point on uh, context of white supremacy. Jeffrey Tubin's the run of his life. Audio segment one. Chapter six. Hair splitting. Simpson was arraigned in municipal court on the following Monday, June 20th. He was physically transformed from any O.J. Simpson the public had seen before. Looking dazed and bewildered, he staggered from the holding pen to the defendant's table before Judge Patty Joe McKay. He wore a black suit and white shirt, but he was denied a tie, belt, and shoelaces, even apparently collar stays, for fear that he might turn them into instruments of suicide. Head cocked to one side, Simpson stared vacantly around the courtroom. Asked his name, he appeared confused, and Shapiro had to prompt his answer. Asked his plea, Simpson muttered quickly, not guilty. The proceeding was over in moments, and in the only real business transacted, Judge McKay scheduled the preliminary hearing for ten days hence, June 30th. Both sides held press conferences the same day. There was, of course, nothing that required the lawyers on either side to answer reporters' questions at that time, and much to recommend silence. Shapiro had a client who had acted like a very guilty man the previous Friday. The circumstances seemed to call for a discreet weighing of options. Garcetti's prosecutors, on the other hand, faced the prospect of convicting a popular celebrity— their task seemed to call for a serious, untheatrical getting down to business. The worst thing they could do was appear unduly zealous. Yet the adversaries could not resist an attempt to posture and spin. Shapiro fancied himself a master at manipulating the press. Likewise, Garcetti, under the tutelage of his ever-present director of communications, ex-prosecutor and ex-local news anchorwoman Suzanne Childs, had similarly high regard for his own talents in this realm. In fact, throughout the case, many efforts at press management by both sides failed, and that was never more true than after the party's first day in court. Shapiro faced a bank of television cameras at his Century City office shortly after the arraignment. Looking almost as sorrowful as his client had in court, Shapiro offered Simpson only lukewarm support. Shapiro portrayed himself less as an advocate than as someone who was looking for answers just like everyone else. At the present time, 
he said. I have not discussed at any great length the facts of the case with Simpson. The lawyer was asked about the possibility of raising an insanity defense, that is, one based on the premise that Simpson had committed the murders. Every possible defense has to be considered by any trial lawyer, Shapiro responded, and I certainly would reserve all possibilities. His lawyerly words made Simpson look even more guilty. Yet the prosecutors made even more trouble for themselves. Since the murders, Garcetti had turned himself into a virtual interview machine. In addition to his press conferences, he appeared on ABC's Nightline, CBS Evening News, NBC Nightly News, Today, and a special nighttime edition of Good Morning America. Garcetti did use these appearances to focus in part on his long-standing and heartfelt devotion to the issue of domestic violence. But the promiscuity of his efforts suggested he was seeking attention for himself as much as for any issue. In an especially surreal touch, Garcetti appeared live on ABC to describe the freeway chase as it was happening. We're all hurting right now. Garcetti told Peter Jennings as the Broncos sped on. We're all sharing a very painful experience. But in truth, over these first fevered days, Garcetti didn't look pained at all. Rather, he looked like he was exploiting the moment for all it was worth. He even strayed into some dubious ethical territory, predicting that Simpson would ultimately admit to committing the murders. Appearing on yet another national program, this week with David Brinkley on Sunday, June 19th, Garcetti said, Well, it's not going to shock me if we see an O.J. Simpson sometime down the road, and it could happen very soon, it could happen months from now, say, Okay, I did do it, but I'm not responsible. We've seen it in Menendez. It's going to be a likely defense here, I believe, once the evidence is reviewed by the lawyers. Marsha Clark's June 20th press conference only contributed to a perception that the prosecution camp was celebrating. It was the public's first real view of Clark, and a revealing one at that. She was a formidable extemporaneous speaker. There was also no mistaking the sincerity of her passions, or the fixity of her beliefs. Like her boss, Clark did not even pay lip service to such legal niceties as the presumption of innocence. She was, if anything, more categorical than Garcetti in her judgments of the accused. Although it had been just two days since the arrest, and only eight days since the murders, Clark announced, It was premeditated murder. It was done with deliberation and premeditation. That is precisely what he was charged with, because that is what we will prove. Thus, in a single breath, Clark wrote off the possibility of arguing that Simpson had murdered his ex-wife in a fit of jealous passion, a perfectly reasonable theory of the case. Asked about the possibility of accomplices, Clark again spoke with total confidence, even arrogance. Mr. Simpson is charged alone because he is the sole murderer. Of course, no responsible prosecutors would have filed charges against Simpson unless they felt he was guilty. But Clark and Garcetti put their case at risk when they let themselves, rather than the evidence, do the talking. And they heedlessly limited their options at trial by rushing into a single theory about how the crime had occurred. Clark was an accomplished lawyer, but a far from obvious choice to prosecute such an important case. 
In fact, Garcetti never really assigned Clark to the Simpson case at all. She had simply taken Van Adder's call on Monday, June 13th, and stayed with the case through the tumultuous first week. It is difficult to say whether Garcetti, given a real choice, would have picked Clark. She had prosecuted several murders, but other senior deputies had tried more, and more difficult cases. Moreover, Clark's June 20th performance suggested that for all her competence, there may have been good reason not to choose her. Among those with long memories of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, Clark's behavior at the press conference raised disquieting echoes. The office's losing streak in big cases was well known. What was less known, or at least less commented upon in the media, was that most of those cases had been lost by women prosecutors with pugnacious demeanors, among them Lael Rubin in McMartin Preschool, Leah D'Agostino in Twilight Zone, and Pamela Bonizich in Menendez. All of these prosecutors came across as aggressive and outspoken, just as Marcia Clark did at her post-arraignment press conference. Of course, it might have been just a coincidence that it was female prosecutors in Los Angeles who had failed in the high-profile cases, just as the harsh judgments of them might have been the result of sexism. But Shapiro and his colleagues on the defense team regarded these perceptions as important. From the beginning, they thought that, like the other prominent and unsuccessful prosecutors, Clark would come across as unduly harsh. Consequently, they were delighted she had the case. Ironically, the public relations concerns that guided the district attorney's office made Clark's position on the case unassailable. Because the events of the first week had been so public, and Clark such a visible part of them, removing her would have caused a considerable stir. During that week, Clark herself had clearly committed no gaffe that would have justified her being pulled from the case. Whether or not Garcetti admitted it, a decision to remove her would have been seen as at least partially driven by her gender, as well as the office's history of failure by female prosecutors. Garcetti's base of liberal Democratic supporters would have rebelled, and the media would have rushed to the story. And there was another, less public reason Garcetti was bound to stay with Clark, this one rooted in the arcane internal politics of the district attorney's office. Clark's best friend in the office was prosecutor Lynn Reed Barragona. Several years earlier, Lynn Reed, as she was then known, had sued Gil Garcetti, then just a supervisor in the DA's office, alleging sexual discrimination in promotions. The case was settled to Reed's satisfaction before it was adjudicated, but the rancor between Reed and Garcetti was long established and well known. The DA's office abounds in these sort of interwoven connections. Though the office has nearly a thousand prosecutors, the same set of senior people has run the office for decades, and the personal, social, and professional relationships among them yield a Byzantine web of rivalry, grudge, and affection. For example, Lynn Reed had once dated prosecutor Peter Bonizich, who later married the prosecutor who would go on to lead the first Menendez brothers' trial. At the time, Peter Bosnich was sharing an office with fellow prosecutor Lance Ito, who in turn was dating prosecutor Jackie Connor. Connor went on to marry yet another prosecutor, James Baskew, 
who would become a superior court judge and Ito's mentor in the district attorney's office and later on the bench. Connor later became a superior court judge as well, and she presided over Marsha Clark's biggest case prior to Simpson, the Mount Olive Church murders. If Garcetti had taken Clark off the case, Clark's supporters might have suggested that he was retaliating against her for her friendship with Lynn Reed Barragona, and thus raised the issue of the sexual discrimination claim. The district attorney had no interest in stirring up that old controversy. Besides, Garcetti gave little thought to replacing Clark that first week because everything seemed to be going so well. With Simpson reeling, Garcetti and Clark's instincts told them to keep the pressure on. The hiring of Shapiro had also buoyed the prosecutors. No one could remember the last time Shapiro had taken a murder case to trial in Superior Court. In fact, he never had. Shapiro had the reputation for trying to delay cases into oblivion, and then, when the heat died down, striking a plea bargain. That, after all, was what happened in most cases. Defense lawyers stalled. Prosecutors pushed. True to their customary role, the prosecutors tried to skip the June 30th preliminary hearing altogether. The California tradition of holding preliminary hearings is a relative anomaly in American criminal law. Prelims, as they are known, are essentially miniature trials held in front of a judge rather than a jury. For many years, California law required prelims, a municipal judge who would determine in a felony case if there was probable cause that the defendant had committed the crime. In fact, prosecutors almost never lost preliminary hearings. That is, judges rarely tossed out cases on the grounds that the government had failed to meet its burden. Still, prosecutors loathed prelims, which forced them to offer up their witnesses for cross-examination by defense lawyers at a very early stage in the game. An effective cross-examination of a government witness at a prelim sometimes rendered that person virtually useless at trial, or at the very least, gave the defense a roadmap to weaknesses in the prosecution's case. Not surprisingly, defense lawyers loved prelims. So as part of the law and order movement that swept California in the 1980s and 1990s, prosecutors fought to cut back on prelims. Specifically, in a referendum proposed by the law enforcement community and passed by state voters in 1990, the government won the right to present most cases, including murder cases, to grand juries rather than at preliminary hearings. By contrast, prosecutors love grand juries, whose deliberations are secret. Most important, defense lawyers are not allowed to cross-examine witnesses or even to attend the proceedings. Asked by a prosecutor to indict someone, grand juries invariably do. Grand juries allow prosecutors to move cases to trial without exposing more than a small fraction of their evidence, and they obviate the need for preliminary hearings. So, in the Simpson case, the prosecutors set out to have the grand jury issue an indictment before the preliminary hearing was to begin on June 30th. That meant Clark had to move quickly. In fact, she had begun her presentation to the grand jury on Friday, June 17th, even before Simpson was tracked down and arrested. The grand jury met in the downtown criminal courts building, a fact of considerable significance in one of the biggest controversies of the case. 
Since the murders had occurred in Brentwood, prosecutors theoretically had the right to try the case in the Santa Monica branch of Superior Court, and thus to have access to that court's substantially white jury pool. The differences in the jury pool between Santa Monica and downtown were dramatic. In Santa Monica, 80% white and 7% black. Downtown, 30% white and 31% black. Latinos and Asians accounted for most of the remainder in both areas. Why, it has long been asked, did prosecutors choose to try a popular black celebrity in front of a heavily black jury pool? In fact, the prosecutors made no such choice. A variety of factors made a trial in Santa Monica impossible from the outset. First, the courthouse there had sustained considerable damage in the Northridge earthquake, which took place just six months before the murders. It was in no shape to receive the onslaught of media and public demands that would accompany the Simpson trial and damage to the district attorney's offices there had left them all but uninhabitable. Second, the county had set up metal detectors and other logistical accoutrements to lengthy, high-publicity cases on the ninth floor of the downtown courthouse. The judges insisted that all such cases be tried there. Third, the DA's office had placed the Special Trials Division, Marsha Clark's unit, in the criminal courts building just so that it would be near those ninth-floor courtrooms. And finally, there was a grand jury room in the criminal courts building, but not in Santa Monica. Cases indicted by the downtown grand jury usually stayed there for trial. In light of all this, Trying the Simpson case downtown was such an obvious decision that the prosecutors never even discussed any alternative possibilities that first week. It was Gil Garcetti who muddied the waters on the downtown versus Santa Monica issue. Shortly after Simpson's arrest, Garcetti told several reporters that he wanted the Simpson trial held downtown because a verdict rendered there would have more credibility than one in Santa Monica. He said a downtown jury would contribute to the perception of justice surrounding the case. These remarks were typical of the elliptical way the participants in the case discussed race in its early stages. But Garcetti's message was clear. A downtown jury would have substantial African-American representation, and its judgment on a black American hero would be respected. In addition, as a Democrat elected with substantial African-American support, Garcetti had to pay homage to his base. And trying the case downtown was one way to do it. Even more important, Garcetti lacked the stomach for the kind of fight and effort to conduct the trial in Santa Monica would have provoked. He would have had to argue that he wanted to be in Santa Monica because he wanted white jurors a politically unpalatable prospect, especially on an issue where he was probably doomed to lose anyway. Garcetti's coded remarks about credibility and the perception of justice came at a time of, and as a result of, the prosecution's first blush of confidence after the Bronco chase. At that point, the DA and the prosecutors on the case had no doubt about their ability to win the case, wherever it was tried. There seemed little harm in the district attorney's boasting about his concern for the sensitivities of a crucial constituency. In fact, Garcetti's remarks would backfire dramatically. 
Once the case began to turn against the prosecution and racial issues emerged at the center of the trial, reporters began pestering Garcetti with questions about why he had decided to have the case tried downtown, i.e., why he had given up the opportunity for a much whiter jury. Of course, if he had tried to keep the trial in Santa Monica, these same reporters would have demanded to know whether his attempt to keep the case away from downtown was racist. In answering these questions long after the original decision to go downtown, Garcetti fell back on the truth, that the earthquake damage to the Santa Monica courthouse and other factors had tied his hands. But because Garcetti's past remarks suggested that he had made a choice to go downtown, the issue dogged him. It was a classic example of the phenomenon of a lawyer's spin returning to haunt him. But Garcetti's answer his last answer, anyway, was the truth. The Simpson case could never have been tried anywhere except the dreary and decaying criminal courts building in the civic heart of downtown Los Angeles. On Friday, June 17th, the grand jury investigation of O.J. Simpson began with the sound of a telephone jarring Cato Kalin awake at 6 o'clock a.m., Seeking relief from the chaotic scene at Rockingham after the murders, Kalen had moved in temporarily with a friend, Grant Kramer. In the early morning call, an LAPD detective informed Kalen that he would be coming to Kramer's home at 8 o'clock and escorting Kalen downtown for more interviews with the police. At the appointed hour, a pair of detectives arrived with a grand jury subpoena, demanding that Kalen provide testimony that very afternoon. Marcia Clark had not yet met Cato Kalen, but the detectives had warned her about this skittish and eccentric witness. Clark and David Kahn worried that he might be manipulated by Simpson's lawyers if they had a chance to get to him first. In fact, though the prosecutors didn't know it at the time, Kalen had already spoken to Shapiro. The prosecutors felt that they needed to lock in Kalen's story under oath, or it might change to help the defendant. This was a highly unusual and confrontational way to proceed. Grand jury witnesses invariably receive more than a few hours' notice. Through friends, Kalen had managed to arrange for a criminal defense lawyer to meet him at the district attorney's office. Escorted into Marsha Clark's office on the 18th floor late Friday morning, Kalen tried to stall until his lawyer, Bill Ganego, arrived. Kalen made small talk with Clark about the poster of Jim Morrison that adorned her office, but he fended her off when she tried to discuss the murders. Not for the last time, he left Clark a thoroughly frustrated woman. Finally, Ganego arrived to intervene. It's five to one. Clark said. You can have three minutes with your client before we take him down to the grand jury. He's going on at one o'clock. That's insane, Ganego replied. You don't subpoena someone for the same day he's going to testify. He's going in, Clark said. That's that. After Ganego and Kalen conferred briefly in Khan's office, the defense lawyer renewed his plea for a little time to talk the situation over. No deal, said Clark. Get in the elevator. Downstairs, in a small anteroom, Ganego made a final plea to Clark just before she was to take Kalen inside the grand jury room to testify. Look, said Ganego, let's just put this off until Monday. No way, 
said Clark. If you force him to go in there, I'll just tell him to take the fifth, and you won't get anything from him. He's already spoken to the cops on Monday, Clark said, and then handed Ganego a copy of the police report of Kalen's statement. She asked Kalen, Aren't you going to say the same thing you said before? Ganego put up his hand. I told you I don't want you asking him any questions. Clark was incensed. I'll ask him questions if I want, and if you want to try to interfere, I'll have you arrested for obstruction of justice. An experienced criminal lawyer, Ganego had never before been threatened this way by a prosecutor. Left no alternative, Ganego scribbled out a page of instructions and handed them to Kalen before Clark escorted him into the grand jury room. Clinging to his lawyer's script, Kalen picked his way through the jurors, who were seated classroom-style in front of the witness stand, and flopped into the chair. After he gave his name and took the oath, Clark asked him, Mr. Kalen, were you acquainted with a woman by the name of Nicole Simpson? On the advice of my attorney, Kalen stated, I must respectfully decline to answer and assert my constitutional right to remain silent. You seem to be reading from a piece of yellow paper, and there is some writing on that paper, the prosecutor said. As Clark would soon know only too well, Kalen could never have uttered such a cogent sentence if left to his own devices. Kalen admitted that he had been reading his answer. Clark tried again, asking, On the night of June 12, 1994, were you in the company of Mr. Orenthal James Simpson? Among prosecutors, it would become sort of a trope, even a badge of honor, to use Simpson's ungainly full name, no matter how stilted it made them sound. Kalen kept reading the same response to her questions, and Clark soon excused him to speak with Ganego, who was waiting outside. After a moment, Kalen returned to the grand jury room and repeated his refusal to answer questions. Then, at Clark's direction, the foreperson of the grand jury read a stern message to Kalen. Mr. Kalen, I advise you that this grand jury is a lawfully constituted legal body, and that your refusal, without legal cause to answer questions before this grand jury, does constitute contempt, and will subject you to imprisonment pursuant to the laws of this state. Recalling the scene for the man who later wrote his instant biography, Kalen described his reaction in his own terms. It sounded like something out of an old dragnet rerun on Nickelodeon. When Kalen still wouldn't answer, the foreperson officially found him in contempt of the grand jury and ordered the bewildered house guest to the courtroom of Judge Stephen Chuliger. Before Judge Chuliger, the prosecutors erupted in fury and indignation. Kalen, they said, was not a suspect in the case, but only a witness. Therefore, he had no right to invoke the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. Ganega replied that Kalen certainly had been treated like a suspect that morning, and it was undeniable that Kalen had received unusually rough treatment for a mere grand jury witness. Under those circumstances, Ganego argued, Kalen had every right to refuse to answer. A thoughtful judge... Chuliger seemed put off by the prosecutor's strong-arm tactics. What was more, even though Chuliger, like the rest of the world, had never heard of Cato Kalin at that point, his reaction to Kalin's puppy-dog persona offered a preview of the response of the public at large. What was the harm, Chuliger asked Khan, in giving Kalin a weekend to talk to his lawyer?
putting aside he may flee the country and be in Brazil by morning. Everyone in the courtroom laughed at the ridiculous prospect of Cato Kalin on the run. Khan had to admit that the weekend probably wouldn't make much difference, and Chuliger put off the confrontation until Monday, June 20th. Trust me, the judge, momentarily stern, told Kalin, don't go anywhere. You wouldn't like the alternative. Be here Monday at 8.30 in the morning. Chuliger then moved to recess the hearing, but not before he learned from his bailiff and told the astonished audience that O.J. Simpson had been located and was at the moment part of a televised car chase across the Los Angeles freeways. The wisdom of Judge Chuliger's decision was proven on Monday morning when Kalin agreed to testify without invoking his Fifth Amendment right. The weekend-long delay had diffused the legal confrontation, but the rocky introduction set the tone for Kalin's relationship with the district attorney's office. When he took the oath and answered Clark's questions, she found that the core of his story remained largely unchanged from the moment he had first told it to the detectives at Rockingham, just hours after the murders. Kalin told the grand jury, as he had told the detectives, that on the night of the murders he and O.J. had gone to McDonald's for hamburgers shortly after nine, and returned at about 9.40 p.m. The grand jury also marked the on-the-record debut of Kalin's singular diction. He said, for example, that at McDonald's he had ordered a McGrilled chicken sandwich deal. At about 10.45 p.m., while he was talking on the phone in his room, Kalin said, he heard the three loud thumps on his wall. Shortly before 11, Kalin said, he had helped Simpson put his bags in the limousine for the trip to the airport. It was, for the most part, an incriminating story. Most important, it established that Simpson's whereabouts were unaccounted for at the time the murders took place. Kalin gave O.J. no alibi. His testimony also established that someone, possibly Simpson, had been rummaging around in the precise location where the bloody glove was found just a few hours later. Some details in Kalin's recounting did favor Simpson. For one thing, as Cato described it, Simpson's demeanor during their trip to McDonald's hardly seemed that of a man who was moments away from slaughtering his ex-wife. Still, that kind of nuance might have evolved in the prosecution's favor if Kalin had come to trust the prosecutors and confront the truth about his benefactor. One way of drawing a fuller story out of Kalin might have been to stroke him, accommodate him, and try to persuade him that the prosecutors would stand by him, and just as important, that he had nothing to fear from O.J. and his friends. But that kind of approach wasn't Clark's style. She relied far more on the stick than the carrot. Clark and Khan had decided to put the fear of God into Kalin by rushing him before the grand jury. They succeeded only in alienating him. Another grand jury witness was Jill Shively. If the glamour of O.J. and Nicole's lives represented one archetype of Los Angeles culture, the reality of Shively's represented another a more common, if less celebrated, saga of the city. Though the great migration of white Midwesterners that created modern Los Angeles had slowed by the 1970s, it never entirely stopped. Jill Shively's newly divorced mother, Nancy, arrived from Indiana in 1979 
and settled in Santa Monica. Nancy Shively worked as a medical transcriber, and the family struggled to maintain a middle-class existence. At the age of 32 in 1994, Jill found herself working intermittent hours in a film supply business and living in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. On most nights, Jill cared for a young niece, the daughter of Jill's sister, whose personal problems left her unable to act as a parent. Diminutive, athletic, long on schemes for success but short on good luck and results, Shively lived one mile and a world away from Nicole Brown Simpson's condominium on Bundy Drive. On June 12th, Shively had been battling the flu all day and had eaten nothing. At around 10.45 that night, she decided to drive to San Vicente Boulevard to a favorite salad bar. Gunning her Volkswagen to beat the store's 11 o'clock closing time, she raced along San Vicente, going east. As she approached the intersection where Bundy crossed San Vicente, Shively accelerated to make the light. A large white vehicle heading north on Bundy raced in front of her against the light. Shively slammed on her brakes, as did the white car, which then ran up partially on San Vicente's raised center median. A third car, a gray Nissan heading west on San Vicente, also stopped suddenly, trying like Shively to avoid the white car that had raced in front of them. Briefly, the three cars were frozen next to one another. Then Shively noticed that the driver of the white car began honking his horn and screaming, Move your damn car! Move it! Move it! For the driver heading west on San Vicente to let him pass. Shively noticed that the driver of the white car was black, and on second glance, she thought she recognized him. Her mind raced. That's... that's Marcus Allen. Then she heard him scream again, and she realized that she recognized the voice. It wasn't Marcus Allen. It was O.J. Simpson. The stunned driver of the gray Nissan was finally gathering his wits to move on. At last he did and Simpson peeled off on Bundy, but not before Shively had a chance to look at and remember the license plate of the white car. 3CZW788. Shively wrote off the incident and continued her search for salad. Her car lacked a radio, so when she went to work the next morning, she had no idea about the murders until her mother called her at her job. Did you hear that Nicole Simpson was murdered last night? Nancy Shively asked. Jill said she hadn't. That's weird, she went on. O.J. nearly ran me down last night. Later that day, Shively called the police, and a pair of detectives came to interview her the following day. On Saturday, June 18th, a detective came to her home with a grand jury subpoena, ordering her to testify on Tuesday, June 21st. By Sunday, June 19th, her name had leaked out as a witness, and reporters were banging on her apartment door. The next morning, she called Patty Jo Fairbanks, whose name she had been given as a witness coordinator for the district attorney's office. Shively later recalled Fairbanks saying that she could give no interviews until she had testified in front of the grand jury. Fairbanks remembered telling her to speak to no one at all. In any event, on Monday, June 20th, Shively decided to give an interview. 
she went to the Paramount lot in Hollywood, found her way to the set of hard copy, and sat down to make a little money. Long-established policies at virtually all outlets of the mainstream press, from newspapers to television networks, categorically prohibit journalists from paying interview subjects. For many years, only the operators on the disreputable fringe of the print world, the supermarket tabloids, paid for news. But thanks to two seemingly unrelated phenomena, the cash-for-trash business exploded in the early 1990s. The first was the birth of a new and successful genre of television program, the tabloid, or infotainment program which parlayed celebrity news and scandal into tremendous ratings. A Current Affair, Fox, Inside Edition, King World, and hard copy, Paramount, boomed in popularity. Produced by entertainment companies with no history of journalistic enterprise or ethics, the television tabloids had the money to buy stories and did so with abandon. The supermarket tabloids, led by the National Enquirer, which has a weekly readership of nearly 20 million, had no trouble keeping pace. The second factor was a decision of the United States Supreme Court. The so-called Son of Sam law was passed by the New York State Legislature in 1977 to prevent David Berkowitz, who sent notes to the police signed Son of Sam, from capitalizing on his notoriety as a serial killer. The measure made it illegal for criminals to earn income from selling stories about their misdeeds. In 1991, however, the Supreme Court ruled that the law violated the First Amendment. The tabloid industry saw the Supreme Court's decision as a vindication of its ways. Because witnesses who take money from tabloids automatically raise questions about their credibility, and because defense attorneys can successfully vilify those witnesses on cross-examination, the practice of buying and selling interviews seriously threatens prosecutors' abilities to win high-profile cases. In the William Kennedy Smith rape trial, for example, defense attorney Roy Black skewered a critical government witness who had sold an interview to a current affair. Ironically, the print and television tabloids that fuel this industry have been widely denounced for their supposed rush to convict celebrity defendants before their trials. In his early press conferences, Robert Shapiro often complained about their unfairness to O.J. Simpson. As it happens, though, the tabloids can so taint government witnesses that tabloid infotainment may actually be the greatest friend a famous defendant can have. In the Simpson case, the LAPD addressed its cash-for-trash problem in a little-noticed coda to the first public announcement of the murders. After giving the basic facts about the case, such as the names of the victims and the place where the bodies were found, Commander Gascon, the police spokesman, issued a plea to the news media. Over the next few days, detectives will continue to interview possible witnesses and gather and analyze evidence, Gascon said on June 13th. Detectives are requesting that the media not attempt to contact potential witnesses in this case, as those contacts may delay and negatively impact the course of this investigation. I need to stress that. It's critically important. If the tabloids heard Gascon's plea, it didn't change their behavior. 
They offered cash to virtually every major participant, and many fringe figures in the Simpson case. One night shortly after the murders, Mike Walker, the gossip columnist for the National Enquirer, announced on Larry King Live that his paper was offering Al Cowling's $1 million for an interview, and Walker held up a cardboard check in that amount to clarify his point. For the interview that she gave hard copy on June 20th, Shively got a relatively small amount, $5,000. Displaying her subpoena for the cameras at Paramount, Shively adapted nicely to the tabloid idiom in her interview, declaring that Simpson looked like a madman gone mad, insane. The producers at hard copy even gave her a little extra present. They said a friend of theirs at the supermarket tabloid star would give her another $2,600 if she would allow him to use the text of the hard copy interview and pretend that it had actually been with him. Shively said sure. Then the following morning, June 21st, Shively presented herself downtown, and Marcia Clark walked her through her story for the grand jury. That night, hard copy ran the interview with Shively. Clark was apoplectic when she learned of it. In a brief conversation with Shively just before she had testified in the grand jury, Clark and Kahn had asked her if she had spoken to anyone about the subject matter of her testimony. Just her mother, Shively had replied. Now it was clear that she had spoken to hard copy as well. Clark demanded that Shively return to the courthouse to explain herself. Shively was terrified, and she brought her mother with her to the criminal courts building on June 22nd. They waited nearly all day for an audience with Clark. When it came, Clark lashed out at her. You lied to us. How could you? Shively tried to explain that she thought Clark and Kahn had asked her who was the first person she told about the incident. That had been her mother. Shively said she didn't realize they wanted to know all of the people she had told. Clark scoffed. We've got plenty of circumstantial evidence, she said. We don't need you. We're going to make an example out of you. Clark ordered her to return the next day, June 23rd, to explain herself before the grand jury. That night, Shively looked in the yellow pages for a lawyer on call 24 hours a day so that she would have someone to protect her from Clark's wrath in the morning. Accompanied by her lawyer, Shively returned to Clark's office for another tongue-lashing. They then trooped in silence to the grand jury room. There, Clark asked Shively why she had misled the prosecutors in the interview before her grand jury appearance. Shively explained again that she thought they had only wanted to know the first person she had told. I was nervous and hadn't slept all week and wasn't really thinking, Shively said. I wasn't trying to hide anything because I knew it was being aired the next day. Shively was ushered out after only a few minutes, and then Marcia Clark asked for a moment to address the grand jury. Ladies and gentlemen of this jury, she said, because it is our duty as prosecutors to present only that evidence in which we are 110% confident as to its truthfulness and reliability, I must now ask you to completely disregard the statements given and the testimony given by Jill Shively in this case. Jill Shively presented a kind of problem that a mid-level prosecutor like Clark would never have encountered before. 
To be sure, hard copy had never come calling on the witnesses in any of Clark's earlier cases. In part, Clark's denunciation of Shively to the grand jury reflected a high degree of prosecutorial ethics, because prosecutors should never present evidence they find less than fully believable. But there was a kind of self-defeating sanctimony in Clark's posture as well. Prosecutors deal all the time with witnesses who take a while to tell the full truth. Some lie far more extensively than Shively did before they get around to a credible story. And Shively's lie seems more pathetic than evil. As Shively herself pointed out, she could not have expected that the prosecutors were going to miss the fact that she had spoken to a national television program. But Clark thought she could summarily dispose of Shively, a simple and unadorned request to the grand jury to disregard Shively's testimony would have more than satisfied Clark's ethical obligations. Instead, in a fit of pique, Clark denounced Shively in terms that made her permanently useless to the government. But Marcia Clark felt she could afford it. After all, the prosecution had plenty of witnesses. If Robert Shapiro had one great strength as a lawyer, it was that he usually knew what he didn't know. In the first few days after the murders, Shapiro bought himself an enormous amount of help, high-priced experts in their respective fields. He didn't know much about autopsies and crime scenes, so he called Michael Bodden and Henry Lee. He knew nothing about DNA, so he recruited two lawyers from New York, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. Shapiro had not gone to trial on many complex crimes, and he had never tried a murder, so he summoned his old friend, F. Lee Bailey. On the day Shapiro was hired, he called Bailey and said, I need you to help me hold on to this case. Shapiro knew that he needed Alan Dershowitz as well. Of course, Shapiro didn't get to Dershowitz first. Whenever any legal or criminal proceedings makes news, talk show bookers instantly summon the Harvard Law School professor for analysis, and Dershowitz gladly delivers the goods in well-rounded sound bites. Alan Dershowitz has an enviable life, a prestigious professorship, lucrative deals for books and speeches, a full plate of wealthy clients eager to pay him for legal work, and yet he seemingly will appear on any program and talk about anything. His lust for publicity has a manic quality, as if the bookish yeshiva boy from Brooklyn still cannot believe that others care what he thinks. So when the calls came from the media in the immediate aftermath of the murders in Brentwood, Dershowitz was, as usual, available. Besides, the timing was propitious. Dershowitz was just completing a book called The Abuse Excuse, and other cop-outs, sob stories, and evasions of responsibility. In it, he wrote that a whole series of excuses, such as the battered woman syndrome, the abused child syndrome, and the like, were quickly becoming a license to kill. Some of these excuses, Dershowitz wrote with disdain, reflected politically correct sentiments that sought to apply different criteria of culpability to people from disadvantaged groups. In effect, he wrote, these abuse excuse defenses, by emphasizing historical discrimination suffered by particular groups, seek to introduce some degree of affirmative action into our criminal justice system. 
the Simpson case seemed to fit right in. On Monday, June 20th, 1994, the day the haggard Simpson mumbled his not-guilty plea in court, Dershowitz expounded on this thesis when he appeared in his legal expert persona on public television's Charlie Rose. On the broadcast, Dershowitz speculated that the Simpson case may end up not with a bang, but a whimper. I mean, this may end up in something like a hung jury. It may end up in a plea bargain. Indeed, Dershowitz went on, the Simpson case might wind up having sinister implications. It may end up with a terrible message. It may end up with a Menendez or Bobbitt-type verdict, which will send a message out, gee, you can get away with this kind of stuff. Dershowitz's comments irritated Shapiro when they got back to him. He told a friend, how can we shut that guy up? After a pause, he said, half-jokingly, I guess we'll have to hire him. And the day after Dershowitz appeared on Charlie Rose, Robert Shapiro called Alan Dershowitz and invited him to join the defense team. Dershowitz dutifully informed Shapiro that he had made some less-than-supportive comments in the media. Shapiro didn't care. Alan, he said, we need you. No law or even any ethical rule prevented Dershowitz from accepting the assignment. Shamelessness is a moral rather than a legal concept. As Dershowitz himself cheerfully noted in his memoir, The Best Defense, almost all of my own clients have been guilty. In the Simpson case, Dershowitz was an observer one day, an advocate the next. A shift that reflected, as Anthony Cronman, the dean of Yale Law School, once aptly put it, the indifference to truth that all advocacy entails. Lawyers live by such distinctions, even as they fuel public cynicism about their profession. Cronman himself later changed his mind about his own mordant observation. For Dershowitz, though, the call from Shapiro did not come completely out of the blue. The two lawyers had worked together before, and although Dershowitz sometimes comes across as a preening clown on television, he is in fact a superb defense attorney who specializes in identifying and exploiting the weaknesses in the government's case. Dershowitz had played a behind-the-scenes role in the defense of Shapiro client Christian Brando, who eventually pleaded guilty to killing his sister's boyfriend. Shapiro now told Dershowitz that he had also hired a lawyer who had worked with them on the Brando case, Gerald Ullman, who was, like Dershowitz, a law school professor but was in many ways his opposite. Soft-spoken, with pale skin and white hair, that seemed at times to render him nearly invisible, Ullman served as dean of Santa Clara University Law School in San Jose. Although the two professors differed in style and temperament, they shared an aggressive philosophy about how to defend a criminal case. Above all, they believed that the defense had to stay on the offensive, challenging, protesting, complaining, and endeavoring in every respect to create chaos in the prosecution camp. Dershowitz and Ullman discovered their first opportunity to do this in the extraordinary onslaught of publicity the Simpson case was receiving. It is a truism among judges in criminal cases that pretrial publicity hurts the defendant, and much incriminating information about Simpson did come out immediately after the murders. However, as the Simpson case illustrated so dramatically, 
pre-trial publicity can hurt the government's case as well. Simpson's lawyers knew they could portray their client as the helpless victim of a publicity-seeking prosecutor and an irresponsible news media. The question was how to turn that sympathetic picture of the client to their legal advantage. Simpson's lawyers hit on the idea of challenging the grand jury. They would allege that the pre-trial publicity had so poisoned the minds of the grand jurors that they would have to be recused en masse, and the case would have to be sent to the June 30th preliminary hearing after all. There was only one problem with this theory. Apparently, no grand jury in history had ever been disbanded for this reason. Still, Dershowitz and Uhlmann figured it didn't hurt to take a shot. Besides, on Wednesday, June 22nd, the government presented the defense with another unintentional gift— on that day, the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office, acting on media requests, released the audio tape of Nicole Brown Simpson's heart-rending telephone call to 911 on October 25, 1993. Can you get someone over here now? He's back. Please. The trembling voice of Nicole said on a tape that was played repeatedly on television and radio. He's O.J. Simpson. I think you know his record. He's going to beat the shit out of me. While the tape did contribute to a poisoning of attitudes against Simpson, its release also added to the defense's claim of excessive pretrial publicity. So, with Ullman working out of San Jose and Dershowitz in Jerusalem on unrelated business, the lawyers put together the first of the 393 legal motions that would be filed in the Simpson case. They called it an emergency motion for voir dire of grand jurors and determination of prejudice from improper pretrial publicity. The most the defense lawyers really hoped for was that a judge would agree to voir dire, that is, question each of the jurors and then determine the impact of the publicity on them. Almost as an afterthought, they threw in the completely unprecedented request that the grand jury be disbanded. Though it meant that Dershowitz had to run up a telephone bill of $800 at the King David Hotel, the defense was able to file its indignant brief on the morning of Friday, June 24th. In it, the defense urged the court to take certain essential steps to alleviate the prejudicial impact of the improper release and massive publicity given to inadmissible evidence in this case, and prejudicial and improper expressions of personal opinions by prosecutors. Listing the calumnies that had been heaped on their client by Garcetti and Clark, the defense lawyers wrote, the district attorney speculated that the ex-football star eventually might admit killing his ex-wife and her friend, but would claim a defense similar to that of the Menendez brothers. In another example, the defense noted with dismay a statement from Garcetti, quoted in the Los Angeles Times of June 19th. It wouldn't surprise me if at some point we go from, I didn't do it, to, I did it, but I'm not responsible. Meanwhile, of course, Dershowitz had said practically word for word the same thing on national television on June 20th. The defense motion had the intended effect of throwing the prosecutors off their stride. The release of the tapes had already complicated their task. Concerned about his base and the black community, 
Garcetti didn't want it to look like he was treating Simpson unfairly, so the district attorney publicly criticized the city attorney's office for releasing the 911 tapes in the middle of his office's investigation. The district attorney, who prosecutes felonies and city attorney, who handles misdemeanors and civil matters, are elected separately and have separate staffs. The airing of the tapes also created legal problems for the prosecutors. After the 911 tapes had been released on June 22nd, several people around the courthouse overheard some grand jurors talking about them, although the tapes had not been presented as evidence to the grand jury. Broadcasts of the tapes were so widespread that they were, of course, nearly impossible to avoid. The prosecutors realized they might have an ethical obligation to tell a judge about what the jurors had said. The judge, in turn, might want to question the jurors individually or let defense lawyers interrogate them. That might take days and reveal new complications that the defense could exploit. In addition, going forward with a tainted grand jury might infect the case with a legal error that could jeopardize a conviction on appeal. Seeing the defense motion on the morning of June 24th, the prosecutors thought it might make more sense simply to give up on the grand jury and go forward with the preliminary hearing after all. Garcetti was still weighing his options when, in a brief court hearing that Friday morning, June 24th, Marsha Clark denied that prosecutors had exploited the publicity in the case and instead accused Shapiro of doing just that. In reaction to the defense motion and the prosecutor's concerns, Cecil Mills, the supervising judge of the local Los Angeles Superior Court, conducted his own brief investigation and learned that several jurors had indeed heard the 911 tapes. The district attorney's office decided to join in the motion to disband the grand jury. In a terse ruling from the bench, Judge Mills said, Given the request of both counsel for Mr. Simpson and the Los Angeles County District Attorney, this court recuses the 1993-94 grand jury from further consideration of this matter. In a news conference after Mills' ruling, Shapiro did not try to restrain his glee. We are very pleased the judge agreed with our position, he said, in a packed hallway of the criminal courts building. We look forward to finally presenting this evidence in a public courtroom, to hearing live testimony under oath from the witnesses. There would be a preliminary hearing, after all. Context of White Supremacy All right, that is our first audio segment. We will pick up second audio segment. We are still in Chapter 6, Hair Splitting. Uh, and we'll pick up the next sentence is Marsha Clark had four days, had only four days to put it together. That's the next sentence where we'll pick up in chapter six, hair splitting. Uh, I'm so glad that we read this book. I'm so glad that we read this book at this moment. Time is right and exact. Oh, I'm so thankful. I'm so, and I'm also so thankful that I didn't watch the FX series, the ESPN series, Oh my gosh, I'm going to hush my mouth so I can get to the folks who dialed in. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 
seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate email is until justice at gmail dot com I have one quick tidbit I want to read before I get to the callers. This is our fourth session. I think I just shared on the compensatory call in last week that I've lived my entire life thinking that OJ Simpson was guilty of killing Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. In four weeks of reading Tubin's book and just doing a little bit of other research around the case, which I didn't even intend to do. We were not reading this because I was excited to do a retrospective on Mr. Simpson we're reading this because zoom bomber number one of 2020 Jeffrey Tubin, the New York times did a big piece on him this week. Almost man, poor old Jeff Tubin. It wasn't that bad. What he did. He didn't do anything like old Oriental James. Let's maybe we can bring him back someday. Old Jeff Tubin. That's why we're reading this text at this moment. But in just Three weeks, really, of researching, I am like 10,000. It just gets worse every day, or I guess depending on your perspective, my confidence in O.J. Simpson's innocence in this manner grows exponentially every day. And it doesn't even matter which source I check, because I said everybody involved in this case wrote a book. They have tons of documentaries and and hey, you can go right to the source. Watch the trial read the transcript and you know conclude for yourself but this is Marsha Clark white woman suspected racist who is lionized glorified uh, in the FX series that is based on this book and where Jeffrey Tubin is a consultant she is like the hero and a victim of sexism as mentioned this week in a text and all the rest of it whoopee for Marsha Clark suspected white supremacists like you got to be joking she wrote a book about all this what does she say in her text about Jill Shively this is one just this little white woman right here because she's in the freaking FX series too where white people let me just read the text and then I'll get here we go this is without a doubt Marsha Clark she writes you get a jolt of adrenaline from a nice courtroom moment There was no reason to believe that I had just presented the grand jury with a flat out lie. But I had. The next morning, I barely stepped out of the elevator on the 18th floor when reporters began asking me whether I'd seen the tabloid TV show hard copy the night before. It turns out that Miss Shively, our alibi killer, had made an appearance despite having insisted to us that she had told only her mother about the Bronco incident, our star witness had found time to address several million television viewers, proudly displaying her grand jury subpoena for the cameras. The news sent me reeling, but things got worse. Now, did we hear any of this? This book was published around the same time as Tubin's. Did we hear any of this? Listen, things got worse. On my desk was a fax from a television actor named Brian Patrick Clark. 
he was claiming to have lost money to Shively and considered her a consummate liar. Normally, you take the imprecations of a disgruntled business partner with a grain of salt. But Clark's story had a paper trail to back it up. According to Clark, Jill had presented herself to him as a screenwriter and asked him to read a script she had purportedly written. She'd said a production company was about to buy it for $250,000 and she wanted Clark to star in it. Before this bonanza arrived, though, Jill allegedly managed to borrow $6,000 from Clark. And guess what Clark later discovered? The script wasn't Shively's. In fact, it was the screenplay for a film in production titled My Life, which starred Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman. Clark filed a suit against Shively in small claims court and won a judgment of $2,000. Get that woman back here, I hissed to Phil. We hauled Shively back into David's office and started grilling her about hard copy. It turned out that she'd done the television interview the day before her grand jury appearance for $5,000. At the time, she appeared before the grand jury. She explained nervously the show hadn't aired. It wasn't going to air until afterward. She thought it was okay. She just forgot. She hadn't slept well and she was nervous and she really wasn't thinking. We'd been duped. This was a serious screw up. We had no choice but to cut Shively loose. I'm going to stop right there. The FX series doesn't mention anything about this woman is a liar. Court cases, liar it is way beyond just, oh man, OJ would have been convicted. And this is one of those where it starts to be like, wow, is this like for real? OJ Simpson didn't do this. And white people are just lying for 25 years to say, oh yeah, that nigga did it. Where you go and get totally discredited witnesses like Jill Shively, who the prosecution even rejects and say, ah, we can't even go with this chick to the, uh, to the trial, which they didn't. And you still like, you can look right now. They do stories, 2016, 2014. If it had, if Jill Shively had testified, OJ would have been convicted. Like, what are you talking about? Like that sort of thing. It's way beyond that. Like I can even go to the other side. Like, let's say Jill Shively didn't lie. Let's say she saw her. Even then, it's total nonsense that he did this. But the fact that you got lying white people that you just keep regurgitating is not just Mark Furman. You got tons of lying white people who insist, oh, yeah, you did it. I found the glove. I saw him. I saw him hiding in Chicago. I saw him hiding out. Get out of here. Like, I'm so sorry, Mr. Simpson. I was duped. White people, Jill Shively and company, they got me. We will continue. Let's hit the phone line 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. That's what I mean, just little things, because they got Jill Shively in FX like she really saw this. Star 61 if you have commentary to share. Let's 
Bay Area Mom, yes, ma'am. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, greetings to you and the caller. I'm just listening. I've been listening ever since you started the book. Yeah. So I decided to chime in because I'm not as nervous as I normally am. Um, but what I did notice was um, just throughout the reading, the the whole, it's written as if he's guilty. Just the attitude, every the disdainment in just with the whole thing, it's as if he's already guilty. All the words, everything that they say, however he connects everything, it just makes it seem like he was already guilty um, before the trial even started. He was guilty. So that's all I wanted to say, and I'll chime in on the second clip. Okay. Much obliged, Bay Area Mom. I may be in error, but... Uh, Mr. Tubin, this book was published originally 1996. So that's a year after the criminal trial. Uh, they said originally he wrote this. He was undecided about Mr. Simpson's guilt or innocence. And since that time, he has changed his opinion. I think certainly before the FX series and all that, he's changed his mind. Mr. Simpson did it. He's guilty. Uh, I pointed that out last week, like, wow, this is this is written from the neutral perspective on all this. Like, eh, I'm not really sure. I'm still on the fence about really. <laughs> like, OK, let me see what the of oh, the bias one is without a doubt. And even from that one, Jill Shively is a liar. So eh. uh, let's see. We'll get Thomas in New York. I have a pause. We have an additional audio clip uh, for this week. This is a short one. Uh, Carl Douglas, black male victim of white supremacy, was also a part of the O.J. Simpson defense team. I don't know if he'll come up in the book or not, Uh, but it was said before Rodney King, the riots don't have anything to do with this, uh, what happened and with the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, We will hear what Carl Douglas has to say. This was uh, him responding just a few years ago, talking about the case and specifically talking about the FX series, Carl Douglas. It's interesting because the show was based on a book by Jeffrey Tubin, a Harvard trained lawyer. He was a journalist with the New Yorker magazine then, and he had a permanent seat in the trial. So his perspective is born by being there every day watching. And one thing that the series portrays, which is correct based on my understanding, is how Marsha Clark ignored the advice of her own consultants. For years, she had dealt well with African-American women in particular. She had been on a run of winning 19 out of her past 20 murder cases, I believe. And in many of those cases, African-American jurors had written her after the trial, maintaining the connection that she had developed with them in the case. So Marsha thought that her affinity toward black women would be able to go greater than the analysis of her own jury consultants. But we knew from our perspective that African-American women are the mothers, the wives, the daughters of black men. And no one can understand the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial without fully understanding the relationship between the African-American community and the Los Angeles Police Department. And that's why I was particularly gratified 
when the opening sequences of the 10-episode series began with the portrayal of the Rodney King beating and then the uprising that followed because that was serving to put the entire atmosphere of that case in its proper historical context. And I think you really have to understand the prism of the analysis of the jurors in order to understand and appreciate that verdict. This here context of white supremacy. If I had not done yoga before we went live and then I had to go back to get that sound clip, I would have for sure put some sound effects on that like context. So I do need that. Uh, retracted before we move forward. We are about striving for accuracy. I did mess up and say that Senator Cory Booker was, uh, you know, with a white parent and all, and folks came in and gave me a a stern chastising. So we are all about striving for accuracy. Can I get that uh, retraction, Thomas, in New York? I didn't hear you. What you say, Josh? Can I get that retraction? about this case's relevance to Rodney King and the L.A. riots? A retraction, what you mean, for me to take what I said? Yes, sir. Uh, I, I really, I was uh, kind of reading my notes. What exactly did the clip say? I was kind of um, writing my notes down, I'm sorry. Mr. Douglas said that I, I really that wasn't, you... can't give it. Mr. Carl Douglas, who is a black male, a part of O.J. Simpson's defense team, uh, commented that he Mm -hmm. said you can't really understand the verdict in this case. You can't have it without appropriate historical context, without the L.A. riots beating of Rodney King. Okay. And what did I say that uh, um, that was? Paraphrasing that the riots, Rodney King, that doesn't really have anything to do with this. That happened a few years before, even that the Central Park jogger case might be closer, a closer relationship to what happened in this case, but not the rioting Rodney King. Oh, okay. The the reason why I add the Central Park jogger case, because if you look at white people's history of feminism, they classify it in waves. Um, but I, I still, um, I don't recall saying that the riots had nothing at all to do with it. I, I, I think it was in the context of what we were talking about. But if I did, I retract it um, to be accurate. I definitely think that the riots had a lot to do with it. Okay, doke. Much obliged. Much obliged. Do you have anything else you were going to add, sir? Uh oh, are you still there? Hello, hello. Can you hear me, Thomas in New York? Are you there? Not sure if he got me. Asked, did you have anything else that he got me? I don't know if he maybe he didn't have anything else. If you did have more commentary to add, let us know. Uh, but we are not hearing. I don't know if you got muted or something happened with the line. Let's see. Other folks who dialed Can you in. Hear me? Oh, now see, now you're Can back. You yes, sir. Uh, I had to reboot my Bluetooth. I'm sorry. I was talking, but it was you wasn't hearing me. Um, yeah, I did. Um, we're on reading number four, a grand jury hearing, and we still have yet to have any murder motive for this murder. Um, and as far as I know, you need two things to prove murder without um, beyond a reasonable doubt without a confession. 
You need motive, and you need a dead body. So they got dead bodies, but no motive. The biggest um, problem this case has thus far is that they didn't look for any other perpetrators. If you notice, um, they got to the scene, they found the body, Herman concludes it's OJ, and there's no investigation as to any other thing that could have went wrong. Um, Shapiro, I didn't qualify Shapiro as a great lawyer. Um, in fact, I felt like um, he was a little unorganized. Um, he, he would dress really nice, look to tea, um, very polished, um, looked like a high-priced lawyer. But he would always be fumbling the papers or he'll be in the middle of questioning someone and have to ask for help. It was just odd. So I never looked at it. I thought that the other lawyers he hired were superb. So Shapiro was more like a coach uh, as opposed to a good lawyer. Um, and I think that him hiring Dershowitz to shut him up, if anything, was a very smart idea, uh, although that could have backfired on him. Um, Marsha Clark was tough and harsh, um, but she's destroying her own case using that tactic. Um, as, as we haven't noticed, we have leak after leak after leak. Even the way that the whole um, chase happens and all the media knows, it's like, this This is not how you handle a police investigation. It, it's just terrible. Uh, she allowed the police to blow the interrogation of her suspect, and she's just a step behind. And to this point, she's losing so bad, they, 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 they probably, this is the problem where they're thinking we've got to bring in a Negro. Um, but, um, the, they actually find a part of Los Angeles with more blacks and Latinos than whites to have a, like, what prosecutor does this? Like, you, you know, you find the, you're trying to win, right? Like, it, it just, everything about this is wrong. And, um, I mute my line. Thank you, guys. Before you, uh, mute, uh, you said for motive, so you are discounting because there were a lot of folks who say, Hey man, he is an abuser. He's jealous. And they've played, they just said they played the, the nine one one calls where he came in and was hooting and hollering and all the rest of it. You're saying that for you, that that does not qualify as a motive. Absolutely. I mean, if they did that for every person that gets a nine one one call, you know, that would be, you know, everyone. No, I don't think that qualified. That was what they were trying to use. But um, at this point, Gus, he's in another relationship. They've been divorced for years. She's in another relationship. They just saw each other. The recital, like, where's the motive? You know, that that's what I'm saying. It, it, you need more proof to, to bring this to trial, in my opinion. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, that interrogation, I posted the video uh, on social media today for folks to check it out. They have the entire, what is it, uh, 32 minute interrogation uh, between Mr. Simpson and the LAPD that happened. This is like hours after the murders, uh, the morning of June 13th. It is a very interesting list. I'd never heard it. I'd listened to it today. It is fascinating. Um, let me see what's, what's one little tidbit I can get one little tidbit. He's saying, you can check all my guns. You can check all my guns. My guns are at the house. I mean, they're right there. You can check all my guns. They're right there. They're right there. Now it could be, Hey, 
Orenthal James is a criminal mastermind. Like he hacked them white people up, cleaned up, got across town, lickety split, which is like he would have to be Superman, like flying. Literally nobody heard the loud Bronco park, hop the fence, drop the club, blah, 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 cleaned up, gets out, does all this cool in the gang. Uh, and then comes back and does the interview in his soul Negro slide that I know I hacked him up with a knife so watch how I throw him off my guns are at the house man just I mean go check them they're right there just go get them (laughs) now that could be or it could be wow he doesn't know how they were killed he thinks they were shot hmm might tend to suggest that he didn't do this just listen that's not just listen because I'd never heard it listen evaluate for yourself does it sound like Negro that just killed two white people and is super like wow the way he is does he sound like that or does it sound like hey maybe he didn't do this other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, if we missed you line should be open proceed can I be heard yes ma'am hi I, I actually wanted to add on to what you were saying um jeffrey tubin even says um that kalo kaylin his the guy that was living with oj he didn't have an alibi for oj during the time of the quote-unquote murders when that time is only given by the prosecution that's not the actual time that anyone has verified that nicole or ron were murdered it could have been 10 to 11 to 12, you know, but they had to have that small amount of time around 1030 just to give that OJ that little window of time when really there's no proof that it occurred specifically at that time. So it was just another way of Jeffrey Tubin implying something that wasn't actually true and showing his bias. Racism. And racism. and racism was that it ma'am yes oh, okay much obliged much obliged he sounds like someone who has already come to a conclusion that oj simpson guilty as charged <laughs> let's get to the trial uh other folks that we uh have missed totally uh if you have commentary to share proceed have you heard greetings mo in dallas Greetings, guys. Thank you for the program. Greetings, listeners and callers. Um, I'll be brief. I just found it very interesting the way uh, Cato Kalin was handled after he was um, ruled in contempt. I thought that was very interesting. Um, uh, like he, he he's being presented as like a child throughout this book i mean from from being a a a freeloader if you would um having the puppy dog eyes uh 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 talking about you know the book um quotes if you you know if you would have been more genteel with him maybe like you know you would have had a better interaction i just thought i thought it was very interesting the way that he's been treated throughout this entire case um um, so much so that where the judge, the judge was like, oh, we'll give him the weekend to get his thoughts together. He'll be all right. Just don't, you know, 
don't fly away. You know, like, he could have, <laughs> but he didn't. I'm just saying, like, I don't see a, uh, a, 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 I personally, in my opinion, I don't see a black male, um, like, or let's just say AC in that same position, um, getting the same amount of leniency. That's all I have. I'm using my line. Oh, I'm wounded. You don't, you don't think AC Cowlings gets that treatment? Where is he going to go? AC is not going to be in Brazil. Come on now. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. Uh, much obliged. Mo in Dallas. Um, let's see. We had one of our investors wrote in. Let me... Here he is. Chapter six, hair splitting. Number one, losing streak in big cases. Most of those cases had been lost by female prosecutors. Clark came across as unduly harsh. The greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action have been white women. Amen. Number two, the same set of senior people has run the office for decades and the personal, social, and professional relationships among them yield a Byzantine web of rivalry, grudge, and affection. An example of unjust networking. Neutralizing workplace racism tomorrow. Number three, Dershowitz, the abuse excuse, affirmative action into our criminal justice system Calling the abuse excuse affirmative action is an example of the tactic of false equivalency used by racists, white supremacists, comparing things which superficially seem the same, but on closer analysis are not. That fella talks about those uh, metaphors and such on the compensatory call in number four Dershowitz. All my own clients have been guilty. Tubin does not mention maybe he'll, he will later the case of Klaus von Bolo in which this NYC aristocrat was initially convicted of attempted murder of his socialite wife and then exonerated by Dershowitz at a subsequent trial. This was not an obscure case in NYC was constantly in the New York tabloids during the 1980s and was portrayed in popular movies. Uh, Anthony Cronman, Dean of Yale Law School, indifference to the truth that all advocacy entails. White supremacy is on both sides of any argument. Neely Fuller. Uh, I'll stop there because we didn't get that far. Uh, let's see. Getting to. So I can only say the time, like everything else that's, you know, we'll get to Mark Furman. We already heard a little bit, but we'll get, you know. He is coming. Thank everybody for staying within the chronology of the case. But we'll get to Mark Furman and the how the blood was collected and all that. We'll get to all that as we go. But I mean, just looking at the timeline, like even if we say Jill Shively is telling the truth, which she is not. And that is so like (laughs) that right there act of racism white supremacy the fact that her narrative gets pushed in perpetuity like to this day as though she you know hey I saw that coon do it and if they had put me on the stand he'd be in jail right now like get out of here um, that sort of nonsense even if we you know push that to the side let's take her let's say Jill Shively she sees him 
at you know ten forty five it right in that area driving like a mad per even stop right there let's put the time to the to the side you are a black male in a ritzy part of southern california los angeles you have just killed a white woman and a white man you experts for the prosecution others whoever the killer or killers are they would be covered in blood hacked up these white people either he has stored a bunch of moist towelettes in the van you know how you get when you get seafood he's got like five boxes of those in the bronco so he can go get naked and towel up okay put his clothes the knife in a bag drive like a madman across town who would do that you don't think maybe I'm running lights and cutting people off that you might get stopped by an enforcement officer? Maybe do you want to take that risk if you got a bloody knife and bloody clothes in the vehicle, even if you're OJ Simpson, much less you're recognizable? Or is he doing all this and he still got the bloody clothes on? Then like, really? Are you serious? It's laughable. All of that. And then he gets back to his property at Rockingham. He gets back nobody hears the Bronco but whatever he gets back he hops the fence drops the glove changes his clothes showers all that the prosecution admits they didn't find any blood in the drain so I don't know where he showered at changes his clothes and is able to come outside and Cato sees him before 11 o'clock and he's calm and chill he's not sweating he's not blood like are you serious it's not even logical it's not possible it's retarded it is If this was a white person, this case would not have gotten out of a grand jury. Like if that's the story that you're going with, if that's the timeline that you're going with, which might not even be true, but let's just go with that. It's not even feasible. Like get out of here. Like you don't have a, anyway, let's look at the, the notes. Like, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Simpson. I thought you did this goofiness. for the the Oh, let's hear it. Mo in Dallas. You left out the burger. Don't forget the McDonald's. Oh, that's right. That's right. Like, and I'm a prep for this. Where's my prep time? Like, are you serious? Like, I'm not at the hunting store sharpening up my knife. I'm not getting my gloves right. I'm not getting my stalk. I'm at McDonald's. (laughs) Like, come on, come on, come on. Y'all are, you're killing me. You got to come. You, John, can't even, we'll get to Johnny Cochran. It would have not even gotten out of a grand jury if this had been a white person. Like, are you joking? Let's see. Uh, He insists that the Bronco chase is the conduct of a guilty person. In the system of white supremacy, being black means you are guilty. Isabel Wilkerson, I wrote my uh, review of her lame book today that was even posited in her book, Being Black, You're Automatically Guilty. We don't need to hear your story. We don't need to hear anything about you. Yes, Emmett Till tried to rape that white woman. He did it. You know he did it. Yes, the Central Park Five, they went to rape that white woman. You know he did it. Same thing, too. I mean, of course he did it. He went to rape and kill that white woman, Arithel James. Othello. They even said that they called him that. In a system of white supremacy, if I'm OJ Simpson, I've been, I got white friends, white validation. I sleep with white women. 
I do television programs. I've tried so hard to get away from being thought of as a black person. And now they are saying I killed two white people and I could be facing the death penalty. I have no idea how I would behave under those circumstances. I played that call at the beginning. He's in the Bronco talking to the police could be doctored. lots of Jill Shively and all this. So, you know, maybe it's been doctored, sounded authentic to me, but you know, whatever. Uh, did that sound like somebody, you know, I just hacked up these white people and to me, it easily could sound and he's not going towards the border. That's important. He's not going towards Mexico headed north so it's the wrong way I mean he could just be a confused nigra he made a point of that he's illiterate right so maybe he doesn't know how to use a compass he and you know two nigras he and AC they don't know how to read a compass you're going the wrong way Mexico go south maybe he really was like oh my god they think the Jews killed these white people I'm looking at the death penalty he even said like if he wasn't a coward the thing to be would just stay there and be with your children I'm facing the death penalty. <laughs> like, wh- what? What? I, it is, in my view, that is, I'm not going to say it's biased. That is white supremacy, racism, even just the flat out. It's no concept of this could be an unjustly accused black male who thinks, wow, I am about to be death. <laughs> like, what in the world? Like, Continuing, Uh, they start talking about all the appearances that Garcetti met. I'd have a lot to say about him as we continue. Keep it in context. Uh, I thought it was important that he described uh, Garcetti doing all these interviews as being promiscuous and that has a sexual connotation uh, to it. Uh, He even said that they had a nighttime edition of Good Morning America like why I don't even I mean if anything that tells you the type of attention that this case garnered from beginning to end the Bronco chase the verdict the gloves like no television I think this did way better than the Super Bowl or any other event uh, in history in terms of just getting people to watch an event Uh, let's see She's talking about Marsha Clark. I read a little bit from her book before. He says Clark did not even pay lip service to such legal niceties as the presumption of innocence. I thought that was a part of what they brag about being, you know, this is a land of constitution and law. (laughs) She was, if anything, more categorical than Garcetti in her judgments of the accused, although it had been just two days since the arrest and only eight days since the murders. Clark announced it was premeditated murder. Remember, he was at the McDonald's before in the recital before that, but okay. Uh, It was done with deliberation and premeditation. That is precisely what he was charged with because that is what we will prove. Not even saying suspect. On this program, I don't even call white people racist. It's suspected racist. Suspect unless they have admitted, then we change things up. But I mean, Arenthal did it. And did you notice that they talked about how they they took pleasure? We're not going to call this murdering Negro suspect. 
and we're not going to call them OJ. A rental. A rental. A rental. In fact, if you watch some of the court footage, they don't even call him a rental. They don't give him a name. The same thing that we had in case where they didn't name both of them John and they didn't name Thabo Cephalosha, not naming black people. They do the exact same thing. They consistently, the defendant, the defendant, the defendant. And they even talked about that was done deliberately. You're not a star. You're not a celebrity. You don't even have a name. The defendant, the murderer, the defendant, the man, not. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Garcetti muddied the waters is such fascinating uh, metaphors in this one. That is in the word guide, incidentally. Uh, I, this is another one. Now, they don't even mention Rodney King, but that is exactly the subtext of what they're talking about. All this about the jury and why did you have the jury downtown? And where he's saying that it'll give the perception of justice, which is interesting. Sometimes perception is not reality. Isn't that what they say? <laughs> but it'll give the perception of justice. If we have a bunch of niggers convict him, that is directly related to Simi Valley, Rodney King. And again, I think they are, it's the system of white supremacy. Everybody thought he was guilty. Like, immediately I guess maybe uh, Daniel Schatzman and the LA Sentinel maybe they were the only ones and incidentally I had said I think some of us also had said previously that that was not accurate to say that that was how black people processed this case and we said hey the spokespersons for black people are white all of the leaders thought leaders for black people are white there are a number of folks who say hey the LA Sentinel was syndicated and Mr. Schatzman's uh, essays, his reports uh, were nationally disseminated and lots of people were reading what he had to say. And certainly you had some black people who were suspicious about all of Rodney King suspicious about all of this. So maybe we are giving them short shrift. I'll stand by what I said though, in terms of influencing thought, man, he did say that the LA Sentinel was failing. I don't think the New York Times was failing in 1994. Time Magazine with the blackface OJ, I don't think they were failing. LA Times, I don't think they were failing. Hard copy with lying Jill Shively, I don't think they were failing. I could be in error. Uh, let's see. Strong arm, I thought it was... They, uh, the metaphors used a thoughtful judge Kazugler seemed put off by the prosecutor's strong arm tactics I, I generally only think of Michael Brown Jr. J- Michael Brown Jr. as being someone who uses strong arm tactics to uh, thief tobacco products uh, and conversely they're saying that this white woman is strong arming young Cato and that I mean woo if you all look at how he's being treated now wait to what is to come my goodness when we get to the trial uh, Cato is a puppy dog we just read white dog Cato Hall oh, poor thing could just take him home with us if anything you have this grisly murder scene and you got this flaky white dude who is coming out and talking all wild and taking the fifth. Why is he not a suspect? I think Thomas in New York said that like, dude, 
get on a lie detector test like give me your whole story matter of fact blood test before we even get to anything like let's see what's in your system buddy like you want to talk about drugs being involved in this case why is he being treated so oh of course he didn't have anything we just love him let's see again he talks about the testimony of Caitlin and he says for the most part it was an incriminating story how he says that like he didn't say OJ was brooding man that white heifer taking my money sleeping around give me a Big Mac can't even eat my food that's not what he said like did I miss that is that that's not what he said that would be incriminating He's sitting around sharpening his knife. Mm. Mm. Can't even eat. Mm. That okay. Wow. Incriminating this OJ fella. He that's not what he said. Like, is he sitting around looking at wedding? Give me something. Give me then on the other end. Like I said, now the window for doing this is really small. If Cato is with him until we're talking quarter to ten, and then he spots him again just before eleven. And then again, they don't even have a time on when Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldwyn were murdered. I mean, we're going off dog bark, dog barks, woof, woof again. So, I mean, if I got to take what you give me with the dog bark, if we're talking somewhere between 1015 and 1030 and that's just not possible. Where is he? Sh- come on. Uh, if it's later than that, he's automatically excluded. If they get murdered at 1045, 1050, he's automatically excluded. And the police did a really lame job not investigating, right? A thousand percent innocent. I feel so bad for being duped all these years. Uh, but the incriminate, I just don't understand that. Like when he sees him, when they're about to get in the car, is he bloody? Is he panting? Is he looking crazy? In fact, now think about this. I'm a black male. I just killed two white people in an expensive part of LA. I race across town in my white Bronco. Like at least do I rent a car? Do I borrow another vehicle? That's not that people don't see me in this area with all the time. Whatever. I get back across town. (laughs) Okay. I hop the fence. I drop my glove. I go shower, clean up, get my body clothes, get my knife so I can drop it off at the airport in Chicago. (laughs) Ha ha. Okay. So, we come out and Cato says, man, I just heard a noise behind the house. Wouldn't it be like, man, let me make sure I didn't. Uh, yeah. And he said they wouldn't look like it wouldn't be. Oh, my glove. Let me get that. Yes, we were around here. None of that. We don't go look. We don't see a glove. No, I wouldn't have a thought that let me double check. Make sure I didn't leave any blood. No blonde hairs. None of that. Come on. Uh, Let's see. all this about Jiv Shah is absolutely disgraceful to give all this time and authentication as the, uh, and he says, Oh, sometimes the defense's best weapon as it happens though, the tabloids can so can so taint government witnesses that tabloid informant may actually be the greatest friend a, a famous defendant can have. Are you flipping serious? Jill Shively is a liar suspected racist and in fact it's even suspected she may have been in the crowd at oj simpson's house 
on the uh, one of the evenings when all this first happened, all the hubbub about the arrest and everything. Uh, they said some of the footage is in the ESPN documentary uh, made in America. I have not seen that, but I will be watching it as we get further into this project. But she is a total liar. And again, I can only insist that is a massive chunk of what that would be another thing that would give me great pause if I did think he did this like why do you all consistently and this is a group effort Jeff Tubin having her in his book they pull her out on like NBC and things like oh man if she had testified Juice would have been convicted man why didn't they use her they messed up she saw him and I believe her and blah 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 she is a liar and there are lots of these white people like this who come out with these stories and oh man I saw OJ Simpson dumping the knife at the airport that's another one use your common sense now this is pre 9-11 but I'm a black male I just hacked up two white people they could be discovered at any time with all the police and security and metal detectors and camera and gawking nosy people who might want an autograph if they see the juice I'm gonna be dumping not even at the bathroom <laughs> like they're talking about oh yeah I saw him like out just in the terminal you know next to the coffee <laughs> like, are you flipping serious I'm so sorry this is what I have believed like yep that's what he did <laughs> like get out of here uh, let's see Joe Shively is a liar. Next. Uh, when he said he was talking about Dershowitz, uh, almost all of, Dershowitz wrote a book about this case and the disgraceful conduct of the police and all the way, even in the prosecution said, Hey, these guys, uh, guys and gals at the prosecution knew about Mark Furman way in advance like right now at the time where they're excoriating witnesses and saying we can't use Jill Shively they had an opportunity right here they said not going to use this Mark Furman dude like we got LA police officers LA police officers LA police officers coming and saying oh this guy's kind of racist like uh yeah maybe you should find somebody else he could mess your case up and she totally ignored them like Anyway, uh, I can't really say I'm a fan of Dershowitz. If all his clients are guilty, I don't know what that what what that means about Jeffrey Epstein, who was convicted of sexual abuse of children. Although they changed the charges around Dershowitz was involved in that, got the charges. So it's not that he wasn't even convicted of child abuse. It was like uh, prostitution. Uh, yeah, it was something they cleaned it up in Florida prostitution as opposed to raping young children. And Mr. Dershowitz was involved in that. So I, I can't really say he's someone that's like, yeah, he's of high moral standing, but neither is Zoom bomber of the year, Jeffrey Tubin. Any other folks have comments they want to get in before we get to the second audio commentary? Can I be heard? Oh, 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 wait a minute, Mo in Dallas. Let's see. Uh, our caller, 6822. Did you have commentary? Hi, can I be, can I be heard? Hello? Yes, can we I be can heard? Hear. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, so I'm a little delayed in reading. Um, so excuse me if this has been addressed, but I'm kind of curious about the relationship between Nicole and Ron because. I was under the impression that he was just a waiter delivering 
<clears throat> excuse me, glasses or something that her mom left in the restaurant. But then, you know, the author re- re- refers to him as her friend, so I was kind of confused about their relationship. Um, and also, I just found it interesting that when OJ, um, when he wrote his letter, he named about, you know, 15 or so white friends or whatever. And, you know, he named AJ, AJ, AC or whatever, whatever his name is, AC, um, as his friend. And when he decided to abscond, he got his black friend to help him, uh, you know, run from the law. So I just found that interesting as well. Um, but that's all I need my line. Thank you. Much obliged. Um, in terms of the relationship between Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, there is lots and lots and lots of speculation about their uh, relationship. Um, you know, I, I guess you can just take the initial testimony, which even I think the prosecution and enforcement officers say is logical. Like how many restaurants can you leave a pair of glasses and someone there is willing to bring it to your residence. Does that happen? Hmm. That would suggest something. Now, the Goldman family has said they didn't have a relationship. Other uh, people have disagreed. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole lot of, I would at minimum say, it would seem they are at least on pretty good terms. Uh, there are rumors that he was seen driving in her vehicle. You know, uh, it would seem that I doubt very seriously that they just met for the first time at the restaurant that evening. And it was such a great first time experience that, yes, I will bring the glasses to your residence. That seems to string logic just a tad. Um, let's see. Mo in Dallas. That wasn't me. Oh, whoops. Sorry. 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 Uh, other caller is another male. That, caller. That, yeah, that was, um, I just want to say, guess, I, um, this is slave 0526, by the way. I, I wanted to say that, uh, I also was, I uh, thought that OJ was guilty my entire life. And, um, I knew nothing of the case. I was just conditioned heavily to just think that black people are like, guilty of that sort of thing. And also it probably has something to do with, um, watching South Park at a very young age and seeing uh, OJ on that show and then making fun of him being guilty on that show as well. So I think it's just like every, in the entertainment area, we always got messages that he was guilty. So it was probably just programming to us to believe he was guilty. I'm your line. It's been saturated. It's been absolute saturation with racist, Jill Shively. It's been 25 years of Jill Shively in South Park and oh yeah, OJ did it. He was guilty. He hacked them people up. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Um, Gus, this is uh, the King Kong motive. Um, hint with, with this Dr. Wells and say, um, tall, dark and handsome, a handsome black superstar, rich athlete. Can't take losing this white woman. You know, he got to go and kill her because he just can't fathom it. That's the, the motive. Uh, and about the blood, they said he had on a frog suit. I'm surprised he didn't mention that. Maybe that'll come up later. Said he had on a frog suit so no one could see the blood all over him and all that stuff. Uh, I do, uh, I look through my notes. I do re- 
redacted statement, I was, I guess I voted. Um, I wasn't trying to make that point. I said the author kept asserting and making a comparison to the trial being tied to the L.A. riots. The white media made a big deal connecting those events in the days prior to the verdict. And then I gave the dates. I was um, alluding to the fact that they thought we were going to riot, you know, because of the O.J. um, case. But I do redact that I should have worded it differently. And uh, last week, I was going to add, just to put this case in perspective, this was before um, digital cable. Um, This was when you had to access the Internet with a CD-ROM and... um, before Windows 95, you know, the iPhone doesn't come out until 2004, so it's no, the technology we have today. And uh, also due to the popularity of this case on CNN and Court TV and the local news, um, the year after, in 96, they launched uh, Fox News and MSNBC um, because they got such a huge audience from the OJ trial. So because so many people were calling, they were like, we, they were five or nine when this happened. I just wanted to put it in the context that all the stuff that we've had our whole, it seems like we had it our whole lives, that, that stuff didn't even exist yet, you know, and, and all these leaks and things are coming out. That's deliberate, you know, it's not like this um, cell phone footage or he was recording something, you know, it, none of that technology existed. I mean, my mind thinking. Excellent point about the uh, technology, because uh, they talk about how uh, just in terms, even something like the the nine one one calls or what have you, like that would have been on YouTube. <laughs> like it wouldn't have been like you just get to hear that at the six o'clock news. Like oh, like just little things like that. But that is a, a huge uh, difference just in terms of. You don't have social media. You didn't have internet even in terms of what I think they said the internet use in 95, like 10% of households in the uh, people that are here, right? If you're over, if you were over five in 1995, you can think back to your house. Like, did you have internet uh, at your house in 1995? Did we have internet? No, we did not in 19. So, I mean, Neanderthal days, man. Uh, we will get to the second audio segment and uh, get in the rest of chapter six hair splitting. If you have additional comments, just make a note and we should have ample time uh, as we proceed. Uh, Context of white supremacy, Jeffrey Tubin, the run of his life, the people, the OJ Simpson audio segment. Number two, I'm sorry, juice. Marsha Clark had only four days to put it together. During the truncated grand jury proceedings, the prosecutors had learned that Simpson had recently bought a large knife at Ross Cutlery, a store in downtown Los Angeles. A preliminary comparison with the autopsy findings suggested that Simpson's recent purchase might be the murder weapon. So on Tuesday, June 28th, Clark obtained a warrant to allow the police to search Simpson's home again, this time for the knife. Cops turned the place upside down, but came up empty-handed. The next day in the L.A. County Jail, Gerald Ullman showed O.J. Simpson the police affidavit underlying the June 28th search. Where's the knife? Lawyer asked client. 
After receiving instructions from Simpson, Ullman returned to Rockingham and went upstairs to the master bedroom, where a set of shelves was set behind mirror doors. Ullman opened the doors and found in a box the knife that O.J. Simpson had purchased just a few weeks earlier. It appeared pristine, as Simpson had promised Ullman it would be. Apparently, the police had never looked behind the mirrored doors. The discovery called to the law professor's mind an old story in legal circles. As the tale goes, a lawyer named Henry Levine is sitting in his office when the phone rings. A voice on the phone says, Mr. Levine, I just shot my wife. I've got the gun in my hands. What should I do? Levine weighs his options. At last, he replies, Oh, you must be looking for Harry Levine, the lawyer, and hangs up. Much as the option of throwing up his hands looked appealing at the moment, Gerald Ullman had to decide what to do. It was a profound ethical dilemma. Here was a piece of evidence the prosecution clearly regarded as important. If Ullman were to touch the knife, he would immediately become a witness in the case, and in light of the cop's embarrassing failure to find the knife, they might accuse Ullman of planting or hiding it. But doing nothing, the Levine option, as it were, didn't seem like the right thing either. The knife's pristine appearance seemed to reflect favorably on Simpson, so the defense would want some way to safeguard its condition. How was Ullman supposed to preserve the knife as evidence without touching it himself? And how could he avoid tipping the defense's hand on this subject to the prosecution? Ullman kept his options open by simply closing the mirrored door. A night of feverish consultations among the defense lawyers yielded a plan. The first thing the following morning, Thursday, June 30th, which also happened to be the first day of the preliminary hearing, Ullman and Shapiro went in secret to the chambers of Judge Lance Ito of the Superior Court. They chose Ito because he was, at that time, the judge who handled all miscellaneous criminal matters. The lawyers asked Ito to appoint a special master, that is, a neutral arbitrator to go to O.J. Simpson's house, note the knife's condition, and remove it to the custody of the court. Ito agreed, and that very morning asked retired Superior Court Judge Delbert Wong to go to Rockingham and pick up the knife. Wong did as asked, and brought to Ito a heavily taped envelope with the knife in it. No one, not the public and not the prosecutors, was any the wiser. Ullman and Shapiro were delighted. From Ito's chambers, they raced to the courtroom of Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell for the opening moments of the preliminary hearing. The atmosphere there did not match Shapiro's cheery mood, so he made a wan effort to break the ice as soon as the judge appeared on the bench. This is the quietest courtroom I've ever been in, Your Honor, Shapiro said. The silence, of course, came from the tension. It had been just 18 days since the murders, but already the case had generated extraordinary media attention. Now, for the first time, all the principals in the case, including the families of the victims, were arrayed in one place under the scrutiny of a live national television audience. All three networks, as well as CNN and Court TV, had preempted regular programming to broadcast Simpson's preliminary hearing live. Good morning, said Judge Kennedy Powell, attempting to conduct business as usual. Now, there are a number of matters on calendar today. 
I think there is one matter that can be resolved in fairly short order, and that relates to an order for a hair sample. Police had discovered hairs, apparently of African-American origin, inside the knit cap found at the murder scene. Prosecutors wanted to obtain hair samples from Simpson so they could be compared with the hairs in the cap. It was, as the judge suggested, a routine matter. The courts have held for many years that a defendant does not have a Fifth Amendment right to withhold a hair sample. But, as would become the pattern in the case, this was not treated as routine. The first issue in court would give the prosecution a flavor of the defense it would be facing in this trial. Kennedy Powell said that the defense was not objecting to providing a hair sample, as long as it was just that, a single hair. Prosecutors objected. Miss Clark, how much hair do the people need? The judge asked. Clark was indignant. Well, Your Honor, hair samples, as I'm sure the defense must be aware, in order to be effectively compared with an evidence sample recovered from a crime scene, have to be taken from each area of the suspect's head, and that means a minimum of five to ten hairs from each area, which usually amounts to about one hundred hairs. Any scientist, no matter how inexperienced, is aware of that fact, Clark declared. You cannot do an effective comparison between a known standard and an evidence standard without that size of sample. So you're asking for 100 hairs? Clark exhaled. We're asking for as many hairs as the criminalist or expert determines is necessary to effectively compare the standard hairs. And I've never seen a court attempt to restrict that. Kennedy Powell asked Shapiro for his view. Your Honor, Shapiro said. According to Dr. Henry Lee, our chief criminalist, who is the head of the Department of Criminology in Connecticut, he tells us one to three hairs are sufficient. Shapiro and Lee were being cute. Only a few hairs are necessary for DNA testing, but many more hairs are needed for conventional microscopic analysis, which the prosecution also wanted to do. Characteristically, Shapiro was more muted than Clark, but he did not skimp on indignation either. I think 100 hairs is unduly invasive, makes the inventorying of the hairs a very, very difficult task, and certainly allows for the possibility of commingling of samples, which could contaminate any test. So, we would ask for a hearing on this. This is what I'm prepared to do at this point in time, the judge said. That is, to order no more than 10 hairs at this point. Clark couldn't believe it. The collection of hair samples was a standard, invariably uncontested matter of criminal procedure. Kennedy Powell had reacted to the issue with great caution to avoid making a very public mistake. In the extremely unlikely event that a defendant even contested the hair issue in a run-of-the-mill case, most judges would have ordered the hair samples without a second thought. Clark thought ten hairs would probably be sufficient, but the ever-aggressive prosecutor wanted to put the defense and the judge in their place. Rather than leave the issue alone, she fought back. If they want a hearing, we'll give them a hearing. Michelle Kessler, the assistant director of the LAPD Crime Lab, happened to be in court to offer testimony on another matter. Clark figured Kessler could handle the hair issue as well. And so she called Kessler to the stand that very first morning. On the stand, Kessler dutifully said that when she heard the defense wanted to limit the sample to one hair, 
I was shocked at best. I said, you got to be kidding. But Shapiro knew what to do with her on cross-examination. He established that Kessler had worked most recently as a bureaucrat rather than as a scientist, and that her academic qualifications were rather meager. Along the lines of taking in-house LAPD training courses like How to Turn Your Work Group into a Winning Team. Are you familiar with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Henry Lee? Shapiro asked. Kessler was. Have you seen his 50-page curriculum vitae recently? Kessler, it appeared, had no great expertise on hair samples. At the lunch break, Clark scrambled to find a certain criminalistics textbook written by Dr. Lee that suggested that about 40 hairs were needed for proper microscopic testing. That proved enough for the judge, and after several hours of this literal and figurative exercise in hair splitting, Kennedy Powell said the prosecution could have at least 40, but no more than 100 hairs. After making her ruling, Kennedy Powell asked Clark to call her first witness. In addition to the public attention, the Simpson preliminary hearing was atypical in another way. As a result of a California voter initiative in 1990, prosecutors now had to present considerably less evidence than they once had in preliminary hearings. Under Proposition 115, as the law was known, prosecutors could, and usually did, present their cases in prelims primarily by using hearsay evidence. Many prelims involved the testimony of only a single police officer, who would explain what evidence had been collected and what witnesses had said. This kind of presentation insulated most government witnesses from cross-examination. But the DA's office in the Simpson case decided not to conduct a Prop 115 prelim. Displaying their characteristic concern for public relations, in this respect at the expense of the long-term prospects of their case, the prosecutors decided to call many of the actual witnesses instead of merely relying on hearsay. They felt it was important to show prospective jurors and Garcetti's constituency just how much evidence they already had. So the prosecution decided to start out with a bang. By this point, David Kahn, Marsha Clark's direct superior, was off the case, having returned to his primary assignment of leading the retrial of the Menendez brothers. In his place as co-prosecutor with Clark, Garcetti had named Bill Hodgman. As director of the Bureau of Central Operations, the 41-year-old Hodgman served as one of the highest-ranking prosecutors in the office. During Clark's brief stint as an administrator, she had worked as Hodgman's special assistant. Cool, where Clark was hot. Calm, where she was excitable. Hodgman served as a good foil for Clark, in Garcetti's view. It was Hodgman who called the first witness to the stand in the prelim. Alan Wattenberg and his brother operated one of the more unusual businesses in downtown Los Angeles. Ross Cutlery was nestled in a corner of the historic Bradbury Building, whose magnificent iron-and-glass interior courtyard had long served the city's moviemakers. Most famously in Ridley Scott's dystopic meditation on the future of L.A., Blade Runner. A mere three blocks from the criminal courts building, Ross Cutlery was surrounded mostly by Latino fast-food joints, evangelical churches, and discount clothing stores. On May 3, 1994, 
The sidewalk in front of Ross Cutlery served as the setting for a scene in a pilot for an NBC series, Frogman, starring O.J. Simpson. Alan Wattenberg testified that during a break in filming that day, Simpson had come into the store to browse among its hundreds of gleaming blades and scissors. Simpson chose a 15-inch long folding lock blade knife with a handle carved from deer antlers. A few days before the hearing, LAPD detectives had bought an identical model from Ross Cutlery, and Hodgman displayed the sinister-looking item on a board for the judge, and, of course, the television camera. Simpson had paid $81.17 price with a $100 bill, and then, providing just the malevolent touch prosecutors love, Wattenberg added that even though the knife was brand new, Simpson had asked for it to be sharpened before he took it home. In private, Shapiro and Ullman laughed. The prosecutors were using the Ross Cutlery witness to insinuate that the knife Simpson purchased on May 3rd was the murder weapon. But the defense lawyers had actually seen the knife, as the government had not, and they knew that it appeared to be in pristine condition. The prosecutors got what they wanted— large and sinister photographs of the knife in virtually every newspaper in America. But as would happen so often in the case, the quest for a public relations advantage led the seekers only to folly. Yes, the knife looked evil, but when its purchase led nowhere, it was the prosecutors who looked bad. There was another reason, besides high drama, that Hodgman and Clark wanted Wattenberg on the stand first. His employee... Jose Camacho had testified in front of the grand jury the previous week. After he testified, Camacho had been approached by representatives of the National Enquirer, seeking an interview for pay. Camacho had agreed. In the prelim, Hodgman asked Wattenberg, Do you expect to profit in some manner from your brother and your employee, Mr. Camacho, having signed such an agreement? Yes, I do, Wattenberg replied. Would you explain to us, please, how you expect to profit? My brother and I, being equal partners in the business, are going to divide this money up three ways. Mr. Camacho will receive one-third, my brother one-third, and myself one-third. What sum of money are we talking about? The figure, I believe, is $12,500. The courtroom stirred. The prosecutors underwent a swift education— they discovered that their tabloid problem went beyond just Jill Shively. And had they known at the outset that Shively was going to be only one of several witnesses paid by the tabloids, Clark might not have been so hasty to disown her in front of the grand jury. With Wattenberg and Camacho, who followed his boss to the witness stand in the prelim, the prosecutors had figured that the mutually corroborating nature of their stories would trump the taint of tabloid money. The saga of the Ross Cutlery knife had a bittersweet conclusion for the defense lawyers who had conjured the clever scheme to preserve it as evidence. After accepting the envelope containing the knife from neutral arbitrator Delbert Wong, Judge Lance Ito left on vacation and turned the package over to his boss, Cecil Mills the chief superior court judge. Mills apparently failed to understand the secret nature of the defense lawyer's negotiations with Ito. Mills simply turned the envelope over to Judge Kennedy Powell, since she was presiding over the preliminary hearing. 
She, too, had no idea of the story behind the envelope and brought it out on the bench with her when she received it. The media promptly dubbed it the mystery envelope, but given its size and the timing of the disclosure, Clark and Hodgman had no trouble figuring out what was inside. Shapiro and Ullman were disappointed that they could never spring the surprise of the envelope's existence, but they did succeed in spooking the prosecutors into not mentioning the Ross Cutlery knife again. Indeed, they would never attempt to identify a specific knife as the murder weapon. Eventually, the defense obtained the court's permission to test the knife in the envelope. It was found to be in mint condition. The publicity infected grand jury, the tabloid tainted knife witnesses, the hair splitting saga of Michelle Kessler. They all demonstrated that the defense was going to take the offensive at every opportunity. But they were merely a warm up for the most important defense effort at the preliminary hearing. Shapiro and Ullman made their first attempt to have evidence in the case suppressed an enterprise that reflected the defense's dual legal and public relations priorities. For the judge, Ullman wanted to establish that the detective's first search of Simpson's home violated the law. For the television cameras, Shapiro wanted to establish that O.J. Simpson was yet another black victim of the LAPD. Customarily, police officers must obtain a search warrant before entering a suspect's property but under the expansive interpretations of government power that had been the rule in criminal law over the past two decades, courts have established several exceptions to the warrant requirement for searches. One of them holds that in an emergency, in exigent circumstances, the police can search without a warrant. The question for Judge Kennedy Powell was whether there was any emergency that justified four detectives, Van Adder, Lang, Phillips, and Furman, entering Simpson's property in the early morning hours of June 13th. Van Adder first offered his justification for the search of Simpson's property at the preliminary hearing, and it immediately drew a skeptical reaction. The detective insisted that Simpson was simply receiving the normal, courteous service the LAPD provides to any relative of a murder victim. Van Adder insisted that the detectives traveled from Bundy to Rockingham not because Simpson was a suspect in the murders, but because they wanted to inform him of the murders and arrange for him to pick up his children. Once at O.J.'s home, Van Adder decided to have Furman vault the wall because the blood they found near the handle of the Bronco made him think that Simpson might also be injured. As Van Adder testified at the preliminary hearing, I was concerned that something had occurred there, whether I had a second murder scene, whether I had someone injured, whether I had someone that was stalking Mr. Simpson and his wife, whatever. When it came time to argue the illegal search motion before Judge Kennedy Powell, Ullman made his point nicely. We are told that four detectives all converged on the residence of Mr. Simpson simply for the purpose of informing him of the tragedy that had taken place at the Bundy location, a purpose that could just as easily have been accomplished by the placing of a telephone call. Ullman pointed out that the drop of blood on the Bronco door was just as consistent with a dripping taco or a driver with a hangnail. No, Ullman insisted, the detective's purported concern for Simpson's welfare merely served as a pretext for their desire to tie him to the murder of his ex-wife. 
Another factor made the police behavior even more suspect. One of the four detectives, Mark Furman, had been to the house before to investigate an altercation between husband and wife. That history might certainly have made the officers view Simpson as a suspect. After arguments from both sides, Kennedy Powell faced a stark choice. According to the prosecution, the detective's behavior amounted to normal service to a bereaved citizen. According to the defense, the cops had acted like jack-booted thugs intent on violating a black man's rights. The truth may well have been reflected in a third view, one that neither side would have wanted the judge or the public to believe. From the moment the murders were reported, the LAPD investigated this case with one eye fixed on the news media. As soon as Detective Phillips arrived on the scene, Commander Bushy ordered him to get over to Simpson's house and make sure that O.J. didn't find out about the murders from media reports. In Bushy's view, that kind of insensitivity to a celebrity might have led to bad press for the LAPD. As Simpson's own previous experience with the LAPD demonstrates, the police wanted nothing more than to coddle and please celebrities. The four detectives may simply have been as starstruck as the West L.A. patrol cops who used to lounge in O.J.'s pool. As the circumstances of this case evolved, neither side could put its actions in their true light. The defense never wanted to acknowledge that the police viewed O.J. with anything other than hostility and suspicion. The police, in contrast, could not admit that instead of investigating the crime scene, they preferred to hobnob with a celebrity. Once the detectives entered O.J.'s property and found evidence linking him to the murders, Van Adder had to construct a believable pretext for why they had gone there in the first place. It worked in the short term. Judge Kennedy Powell decided not to suppress the evidence, although the defense had the right to renew the motion in Superior Court. This prosecution victory came at a price. The suppression motion shifted the public debate on the case, at least in part, from whether O.J. was guilty to whether the police had acted appropriately. And on the latter question, Shapiro made considerable progress. He was able to portray Van Adder as incompetent at best, sinister at worst. He showed that Van Adder's search warrant affidavit contained significant errors. Simpson's trip to Chicago had not been unexpected, and the substance on the Bronco door tested only presumptively, not positively for the presence of blood. Although they failed to persuade the judge, the defense lawyers planted the idea with a pool of potential jurors that the police had a secret, nefarious agenda to get Simpson. That alone made the preliminary hearing worthwhile for the defense. Simpson lost the prelim, of course. After five days of testimony spread on both sides of the July 4th holiday weekend, Judge Kennedy Powell ruled on July 8th that Simpson had to stand trial in Superior Court. But notwithstanding his reputation as a dealmaker, Shapiro had shown the prosecutors that in this case, he would be battling them every step of the way, for the audiences both inside and outside the courtroom. All the legal action, as well as an unending stream of well-wishers visiting him in jail, considerably buoyed the spirits of Shapiro's client. By the time O.J. Simpson was arraigned to Superior Court following the prelim, he looked like O.J. Simpson again, with his tie and belt returned to him, 
he cut a dapper figure once more, and he greeted his supporters in the gallery with a wink and a thumbs up. And when the judge asked him to repeat his plea to the charges of double murder, this time Simpson needed no prompting. Absolutely 100% not guilty, he said. Context of white supremacy. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't even contain myself. Do you know what the next chapter is? Do you know what the next chapter is? The race card. Oh, two book clubs. I just said that. I just said that last week. Like, man, I have never been more excited. Like, we should have two book clubs a week. Like, O.J. Simpson. Uh, man, have to wait a week for the race card chapter. I cannot believe it. Uh, context of white supremacy. So that's our second audio segment. I'm so excited to uh, keep it. What do you say? Absolutely 100% not guilty. <laughs> Underline it, bold face print, 1000%. 10,000%, 100,000%, like, no way. Even if he wanted to confess to it, like, man, a whole lot, like, the time, brother, like, break it down. Do you have a jet or jetpack something? Uh, incidentally, discrepancies with FX, like, that series is so disgusting in so many ways. I'm trying to, I just watched it when we started reading this. I'm so glad I didn't watch it back then because I would have been duped. It's so much propaganda, white supremacy propaganda around all of this. They portray Johnny Cochran being the lead attorney who is arguing about the hairs and you know this is you're just fishing and this is invasive and we'll give one hair uh, as opposed to Shapiro Ullman uh, who are doing this in the book now everything it's not a documentary the FX series and they're trying to condense an event that took place over a year and a half basically into 10 hours so you're going to have to cut out a lot and you know and it's you know it's TV, so they can make up what they want. But I mean, they're just that one is more subtle, right? Like nothing. I wouldn't say it's anything extra sinister there. If you want to make, you know, Johnny Cochran was the lead attorney. So, OK, but there are a lot of discrepancies, even the discrepancy. I posted the interrogation video. If you're listening to the book club, you probably have not heard the authentic interrogation. Check it out. It might be altered to make sure I concede that I haven't verified it might be altered, but I think it's legit. Check it out. It's 32 minutes. Compare, compare what you hear there to the portrayal on FX and even the way it's described in this book. Does it sound like the cops are starstruck? Does it sound like they're talking? Like, oh, wow. The juice. Do they sound like that? Or do they sound like they're just talking to a Negro? The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND press star six one if you would like to participate uh, our investor continued number six yes the knife looked evil but when its purchase led nowhere it was the prosecution that looked bad no marks on OJ no murder weapon and a questionable excuse for a warrantless search 
This certainly is giving me pause regarding my original thoughts at the time that OJ was guilty. (laughs) Any logical person in a system of racism, just with what he said right there, and I cannot emphasize enough, the time, it is totally like anybody out there. Do you honestly think you could kill two, and they said this was a struggle. This wasn't no 30 seconds. It's laugh. They have like uh, simulation videos on YouTube where OJ Simpson comes out and like drops both Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson simultaneously, like with this flying Negro judo chop, like, ah, and they both fall on the, like, come on, man. And that's, oh, yeah, he did it. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, this was like not a instantaneous thing. This took some time. There's evidence that Mr. Goldman uh, fought back and struggled mightily. So this went on for a while. He would be covered in blood. Like, really? How would he have time to do that? And then the setup. You go to McDonald's. Like, <laughs> who sets up for this gruesome murder? You get the uh, supersized fries and the chicken nuggets, apple pie. That's killing food, you know. Like, are you seeing then you're straight? What? It's goofy all the way through. And then you pile in the Jill Shivleys, Shivleys on it. It is a total disgrace. I cannot even imagine being OJ Simpson and I'm innocent and everybody thinks I killed these two white. The mother. Oh my God. You do all of this grisliness with your children right upstairs who's to say they aren't awake and here like it might be a scream ow you just poked my jugular who's to say his children don't wait? oh my lord our negro father is killing our white mother and some random white man really really The system of deception mastered, convinced the entire, I guess the other part would be, well, how is it for, how easy is it for white people to convince that black people, any black person is guilty of something? I'm giving my commentary early. I'll hush. If you haven't seen those naked gun films, I'm not saying you need to watch them. I just find it interesting. Like OJ Simpson's character is mistreated throughout. Like he's, he's just there to be mistreated and abused and then this happens like I'm sorry Mr. Simpson 100% not guilty uh, it, can I get one more it, they have one of the theories is right the Kardashians because like Kim Kardashian I looked in the garment bag the theory is he did this he hacked him up he hopped in the Bronco he ran over Jill Shively He gets to the house. He hops the fence. He drops the glove. Cato and he, they load the the suitcase. They go to the airport. He takes the knife to the airport, right? One of the, he takes the knife to the airport, evades the metal detectors. Luggage doesn't get lost. Gets to Chicago, gets to the hotel. They tell him, okay, I'll come back. Gets on a plane again, goes through the metal detectors, security, for all he knows, LAPD could be at the airport waiting to cuff him, which they did as soon as he got to his house. That could have happened at the airport, right? That happens sometimes. Major case. He doesn't know. They could have snatched him at the airport. They already had a search warrant and took everything. 
They didn't even let him go in his house. They put him in handcuffs. They could have snatched the bag right then. You have people that will say with a serious face he did all of that and brought, brought the knife and bloody clothes back from two flights and then in front of police right before he's handcuffed passes it off to Robert Kardashian who carts it away to safety. They got whole documentaries and books that that's the theory. Like, are you flipping serious? Whoa. I'm so sorry, Mr. Simpson. I'm so sorry. They got me. They got me. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you have commentary? Proceed. Can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, Gus. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, 100%. Wait, um, absolutely 100% not guilty. And I had the, the T-shirt and the hoodie, Gus. That was big in the hood. You know, you wanted to show support for OJ. That that shirt was uh, very big. They even had uh, uh, one with Bart Simpson, who kind of looked like OJ, with the absolutely 100%. Now, it was a big deal. Um, I'm going to look through my Polaroids. I might have a picture. Um, the deliberate misinformation that surrounded this case Mind you, there's no internet. I mean, it was just terrible. It was uh, OJ had he left a skull cap at the scene with hair samples, and uh, he wore a scuba suit to kill them. That he they had a picture of the scuba suit, and he wore it for a movie that didn't even come out. It was just one after another after another, just um, leaving people to think he did it before any of the case goes to court it was just how white people do um you got a murder suspect oj simpson that you arrest at his house um they find a bloody glove on his property um they don't find a knife in his closet like man oh lapd is the tackiest police work you could ever think of um um, they were at his house unattended, even in the day of the Bronco chase. I mean, they were uh, inside his house the night of the crime, and they didn't find a knife. And these people were killed with a knife, like just on um, the LAPT, so incompetent. Um, and just as much as last week's meeting, they contaminated the other crime scene. With how many people are there? It's just uh, failed to locate and extract the knife. It's just everything they're doing is why this case is a failure for them. Marsha Clark outclassed again. Shapiro brings an expert from Connecticut to challenge her. Here sample, she was unprepared, scrambling to find someone to help her. She brings up the knife at court before she even examines it. Like, you haven't tested the knife. You don't even know if it's the knife. You could do a, I don't know, I know it's not ballistics, but there's a way to tell if this is the knife used in the crime. She does none of that. She brings it up, fails traumatically, the leaks to the tabloids, and uh, back then, you had the inquirer, the son, the examiner, all this stuff at the front of the every supermarket in America, OJ Guilty, every week a new publication with some fake news that they made up that he had, you know, did it. It was just one of the reasons why I think that this thing is clear cut to white people. He did it, even though it's obvious he didn't. Um, they were um, 
I mean, just look at all the leaks coming from prosecution office and the police force. You got to hold that, have an airtight, you know, way to do the case. Man, at a last point, that she's going to OJ's house to rescue him. <laughs> we, we thought something happened to him, too. Like, come on. <laughs> and you're riding with Mark Fermi in a bloody glove. Who's probably that I found it. It's just, it, she should have never took this. To, like, your, your police are so involved. It's everything backwards so far. I mean, my life, thank you. I posted a picture of the toy uh, and t-shirt of Bart Simpson, the OJ Simpson, Bart Simpson version. I didn't do it. And they have him with the glove and everything, which would kind of suggest that he did do it since he's wearing the glove and all, but much obliged uh, Thomas in New York. Uh, I do want to point out the Rampart scandal. I would encourage folks to check that out. That should be in contact again. This might be another one. Maybe people laugh before OJ is guilty. And then you follow that behind and say, maybe the LAPD had something to do with the assassination of notorious B.I.G. At minimum, much like this case, it's unsolved. The Rampart scandal, it would be Rodney King, subsequent riots, Rampart scandal, assassination of notorious B.I.G. Like that would all be together in like one class of white supremacy, racism and LAPD 1990s like master class um, other folks who dialed in with commentary proceed Let's see, I, yes Mo in Dallas I'm just oh. nabbing Irie because we missed her totally yeah um, I just wanted to uh, say really quick um, or ask a question you guys when you buy a knife you know, hunting knife, kitchen knife, um, I don't know, maybe even a utility knife. Do you, you all rather your knives dull, right? Not sharp? I'm thinking the answer is probably no. So for them to even add that point, yes, for the knives to be sharpened, yeah, duh. And that's all I had to say. Uh, much obliged, Irie. Uh, I would take this moment to thank the cow's investor who just nabbed Gus T, a knife sharpener from my wish list. I love having extra sharp knives in my residence, not to stab up white people, but I you know, have been known to chop a veggie from time or two. So it is great if you're going to have. In fact, they say generally people injure themselves having dull knives applying so much extra force because it's not sharp. So have sharp knives, be cautious, much less likely to injure yourself. But yes, sharp knife niggers. He definitely did it. Mo in Dallas. Thank you for your patience, sir. Uh, thank you. Um, to speak to Irie, um, I actually have a knife right now that I need to sharpen. So um, I'm actually, uh, I agree with her. Yes, yes, you, you are supposed to. I need to take it home to sharpen it. I usually keep it uh, in my vehicle. So I'm going to take it upstairs to do that. Um, the, um, and in, re- in response to the the last, uh, well, the last, the female caller from the last uh, break, um, 
uh, on Nicole Simpson's relationship to Ron Goldman. Um, earlier in the book, Nicole categorized herself as a party girl, you know, or some something of that sort. So it's um, like he could have been a frequenter, a frequent visitor, you know, on on those grounds alone. There's no. So there probably wasn't a relationship. There was probably uh, various activities, if you will. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not to speculate. I don't. I don't want to speak ill of the lady, but it's a possibility from what she described. Um, and as far as Marsha Clark, um, all of this time in between uh, gathering evidence, I'm surprised that the this audio segment stated that she only had four days to prepare. She was, you know, adamant about how, how much evidence she had and all of that. So now all of a sudden she's on a time restriction. Um, and they were talking and, um, the book also uh, mentioned that she won, I think 19 of her past 20 cases, you know, um, and, and maybe in my mind, it seems as if, uh, they were kind of like they they may have been um cases where the 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 opposing party didn't fight as hard because like she seems very unprepared that's all I have I mean my line much obliged mo in Dallas uh cannot echo that last point enough um the shoddy work uh and them put i mean making up reasons for a search warrant is very common and or falsifying information for a search warrant grounds for a search. We talked about that before. That said, I've been harping on that for years, way back when I thought OJ did all this. I was still saying, Hey, I do not consent to searches. They do all kinds of things when, Oh, I was just poking around. Oh, glove, violet, crack cocaine, all kinds of things with black people. So, I mean, that get even when I thought he was guilty, that gave me tremendous. And it's Mark firm. <laughs> like it could have been anybody. It could have been the best, you know, most well-behaved, well-intended officer in the history of the known universe. And I would have still had like, whoa, this no search warrant. And this is the justification. But all of that to say, I think they are accustomed to being able to, you know, hey, we're unprepared. We got bad evidence. We searched you without a warrant. And you and your sleepy public defender who can't even remember your name. And what are you going to do? He's going to contest motions when we want to get a hair sample. No, you'll get a plea deal and serve your time and shut up. That's going to trial with your little public defender. We got all this. We got the blood evidence. We got Mark Furman to testify. We got hair. <laughs> like, hey, if you're if this is uh, olden J. Sampson. Better cut a plea deal. Looking bad. Gonna put they they release those nine one cut a plea deal. Cut a plea deal. Other folks have commentary? Very last thing I wanted to say on Mo made two very good points. On the one earlier was Cato being treated like a child. <laughs> 
And that was a great point. You know, Kato's not going to leave everyone laughing. <laughs> you know, the, um, the, the, the Green Hornet's trusty sidekick, I guess. So OJ's the Green Hornet. And um, Marsha Clark, uh, her excellent record. That was a great point, too. If the police can do whatever they want with the evidence, collect it, take samples, take as much hair and blood as they want and lose it and, you know, smear it, it's just... Of course you're going to win all your cases. Like, it's, it, they they fix the cases in L.A. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And the evidence to support that the cops she put on the stand, the lead investigator has been known to do this. Like, you still put... It's like everything is wrong um, with this whole thing. And I'm glad that we are doing this book because I, I, I can't figure out why people don't think that he's um, innocent today. It's like everyone I speak to swear he did it. And it's like, don't y'all remember this? Like, but I'm glad it's refreshing my memory on just how bad this was. You know, it, it, I wasn't wrong all these years. You know, I was questioning myself. <laughs> I didn't know why I think if anything it's not fun this is the power i mean imagine that has has anybody anybody like we could take this one people can respond has anybody ever like not haha joke anybody like seriously thought like do we live in a world where oj simpson is innocent and he's been like vilified for the last like has anybody seriously thought that at any point in their life like OJ Simpson did not do this not that he should have been acquitted right like no he is innocent he didn't kill anybody and he has been unjustly persecuted for a quarter century has anybody like seriously thought that any time in their life you can just give us a yay or no yes I thought that Got two? Okay. I was not in that number. I had never seriously given that a thought until we read this book. But I think, and they they point out the statistic. I'd heard, I'm not an OJ, this is my first time even looking at the case. I had never, you know, I didn't watch the trial. I was in my feelings complaining about the finals. And that'll tell you about gauging what's important. I have watched the Bronco chase the interrogation, the police call, like I have went back and reviewed that and watched it and studied it repeatedly. Game five of the finals is available. Go back and watch Patrick Ewing's triumph. I have not attempted to watch that game or find it at all. Like sometimes you are not able to accurately like judge what is important. Like, in fact, it's even worse for me. I was with many of my relatives at the time. I was in my feelings about the game and I didn't know I was a child. I didn't know who OJ Simpson was like. I didn't see him play football. Just the Hertz guy. Like we're missing the finals for the Hertz dude. They were talking about this. I don't remember what they said. Cause I had no content. I wasn't even really, you know, paying attention. It's like, we missed the game. Now you guys got to sit around and talk about this guy. Like, Oh, I so wish I had just paid attention. Like, were they thinking he was guilty? <laughs> like what, uh, not being able to accurately assess, you know, truth, system of racism, and uh, what is important. Rarely it's going to be ball games. Uh, let's see. Uh, so, oh, wait a minute. So, okay, so he says, 
A few days before the LAPD hearing or for the hearing, LAPD detectives had bought an identical model from Ross Cutlery and Hodgman displayed the sinister looking item on a board for the judge. And of course, the television camera Simpson had paid eighty one seventeen price with a hundred dollar bill like sinister. Ooh. Like you said, not checking the knife before. And they still come up with all these goofy stories. Oh, he hit the knife in Chicago. Oh, he had the knife at the LAX airport. Oh, we found a knife on his property. Like, get out of here. Like, goofy story on top of goofy story. I'm even waiting. One of the prosecute. Oh, yeah, hush. I have to see if they bring it up next week. Anyway. Uh, let's see. They, <laughs> word usage. Uh, before we get to word uses, they mentioned Lion Jill Shively again. Had they known at the outset that Shively was going to be the only one of several witnesses paid by the tabloids, Clark might not have been so hasty to disown her in front of the grand jury. Again, it's not that she's a liar and she does not have credible testimony to suggest that he was fleeing the scene in his Bronco running white people off the road with a bloody weapon and bloody clothes in the vehicle no it was just that oh she took some money she's not rich like OJ and all these other white people she just got and she didn't even get that much money says she only got $5,000 and they blew it being arrogant and blowing off witnesses no masturbating Jeffrey Tubin. she's a liar uh, so word choice, he continues the saga of Ross Cutlery Knife had a bittersweet conclusion for the defense lawyers. They call it chocolate bittersweet, right? Anyway, uh, bittersweet conclusion for the defense lawyers who had conjured the clever scheme to preserve it as evidence. That word conjured. I stopped and uh, looked at it and said, wait a minute, let me get my dictionary here for a conjure to char." Yeah, to charge or entreat earnestly or solemnly to summon by or as if by invocation to affect or affect by or as if by magic. Uh, and it even has, let me come give one more to summon a devil or spirit by invocation or incantation. Conjure has that connotation of something uh, magical black magic evil maybe even sinister uh, ghostly and then he comes after that with uh, right in the same paragraph so conjured mm, and then he comes down and he says uh, Clark and Hodgman prosecutors had no trouble figuring out what was inside Shapiro and Ullman were disappointed that they could never spring the surprise of the envelopes existence but they did succeed in spooking the prosecutors into not mentioning the Ross Cutlery knife again spooking what are you talking about like and in fact they use the term spook as a racial slur it's the spook who sat by the door you conjuring and spooking Negroes. It's not just, wait a minute, we got the knife. It's not the murder weapon, period. No, he's a guilty nigger who's spooking and conjuring. Get masturbating Jeff Tubin. Get This is what I believed was true for 25 years. OJ did this based on, let's see. 
for the judge, Omen wanted to establish the detective's first search of Simpson's home violated the law. Apps, it's no way. If I I didn't know this, I didn't follow the case. If I had known this and the significance of this at the time, that would have been enough. And even to Thomas's point, they did a poll. They said that most of the they show the poll all the time. Most white people thought he was guilty. Most black people thought he was uh, innocent or not guilty. And how now everybody thinks he's guilty. The other poll that I thought was way more important was the people who just read the news didn't watch the trial. They were much more likely to think he was guilty. The people who watched the trial were much more likely to think he was going to be not guilty. That I think goes to these type of details. If you miss this and all you get is spooky knife, sinister knife that is in pristine condition and not used. Spooked. If you, that's what you get. And then the 911 say, Oh yeah, he did it. Mm-hmm. Abuser. He hid the knife in LAX and he ran. Let's get the rest. He said, customarily police officers must obtain a search warrant before entering a suspect's property. But under the expansive interpretations, I was thinking, discretion of government power that have been the rule in criminal law over the past two decades courts have established several exceptions to the warrant requirement for searches one of them holds that in an emergency in exigent circumstances discretion the police can search without a warrant and so Mark Furman finds ketchup and this is like the sun is barely up this is, I think, like they said, like 435 in the morning when they go to Mr. Simpson's uh, residence. So it's not noon, bright and sunny. He goes and see and it's not a pool of blood. It's a speck. Is this bird poop? Is it ketchup? Is it taco sauce? As he said, oh, it's a blood. We got to hop that. And it's I'm so concerned about black people in interracial relationships. I got to go protect O.J. Uh, let's see. And uh, I appreciate it. Vanetta first offered his justification for the search of Simpson's property at the preliminary hearing. This is online. I posted, you can see the video of this and it immediately drew a skeptical reaction as it logically should have. Uh, the detective insisted receiving the normal courteous, courteous service. The LAP isn't that la- that's what I mean about Rodney King. That's the normal courteous service. Offered by LAPD. <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, come on. And Dijon Kizzy, if we want to make it right now, 2020. Vanatta insisted that detectives traveled from Bundy to Rockingham, not because Simpson was a suspect in the murders, but because they wanted to inform him of the murders and arrange for him to pick up his children. They didn't bring the children with them to the residence. They were at the police station. Mr. Simpson has security at the house. Four in the morning. This isn't worthy of a call. Are you expecting them to be awake at this time? Five in the morning? The expectation is that they're going to be awake? Come on. Uh, Mark Furman had been to the house before. Another factor made the police behavior even more suspect. One of the four detectives, Mark Furman, of Washington State all these years. I didn't know. He's my neighbor right here in Washington State. Like, man... Uh, had been to the house before to investigate an altercation between husband and wife. That history might certainly have made the officers view Simpson as a suspect. Mm. 
Mm. Especially his views on the Negro. Mm. Uh, I, he makes all this big deal about the officers being sh- starstruck. Again, I do not agree. You can listen to the interrogation and come to your own conclusion. Was Mark Furman one of the officers who lounged at O.J. Simpson's pool? He didn't include that in the book. I don't remember that part. Uh, he says one of the detectives, once the detectives entered OJ's property and found evidence linking him to the murders, Van Natter had to construct a believable pretext for why they had gone there in the first place. That means lying to me (laughs) had to construct. See, that's what I mean. Had to construct a believable pretext. He didn't say they had to conjure something, spook around and find. See, words are important. Old masturbating Jeff Tubin. Uh, let's see. It worked in the short term. Judge Kennedy Powell, who is a white woman, affirmative action. Uh, decided not to suppress the evidence, although the defense had the right to renew the motion in Superior Court. He showed that the Natter search warrant affidavit contained significant errors. Simpson's trip to Chicago had not been unexpected. And that's huge because that's just not an error. That's another one in wording. That is a flagrant lie. They spoke with Arnell Simpson, O.J. Simpson's daughter. That's included in the text. And she told them this was a planned trip. He had a limo scheduled to be there. What do you mean unexpected? They can lie and make up a reason for a search warrant. Just use the words or at at least give me something similar to conjure. Uh, And the substance on the Bronco door tested only presumptively, not positively for the presence of blood. And again, this is not at noon. You're out looking. I don't know. Maybe Mark Furman has amazing eyeballs and just, oh, yeah, that's blood. He's like the Terminator, right? He can just do an analysis. Oh, yeah, that's blood. Mr. Simpson, and he might be injured. Got to hop the fence. And then just happen to find the glove. Folks have any other thoughts before we wrap up? Everybody's good for the week. Grand, oh, 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 oh. Uh, retired firefighter. Do you have comment? Oh man, <laughs> missing folks left and right. Uh, Emmy, did you have commentary? <clears throat> Greetings, beautiful people. Namaskaram, guys. Thank you for unmuting me, even though it is past eleven o'clock. So I just wanted to answer the question that you had posed. Um, to paraphrase, at any point, did we ever consider him to be not just acquitted, but absolutely not guilty? Like, he just really didn't do it. Um, And I had a weird moment, like a weird feeling when you asked that, because the truth is for me, no. Like, I I had just, I just went with that he had done it. And that wasn't based off of anything substantial. It was just off of pop culture. Like, I've heard his name mentioned in music, um, in a lot of comedy, in movies. And so for me, it was just that he had done it. But if I really sit back and think this man really did not do it at all, then it makes the clip in the beginning all the more frightening because to me, he did sound terrified and very, very scared. 
that's how he sounded at that first clip to me. So I just wanted to chime in on that. So thank you for listening. Namaste. Uh, I thought it was so important because I'd never heard that. I've been thinking all these years he was guilty and I'd never heard that. And I just went with the narrative like, yeah, that's just what a guilty person does. He was out running and trying to escape in the Bronco. I'd never heard what what he actually sounded like there to make an assessment, you know, like, yeah, it's the propaganda. That's why I said those films and I didn't even see those films like the FX series and the ESPN documentary, like retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, yes. Uh, even after the trial, uh, they didn't stop with uh, Renthal James Simpson. Uh, oh, wait a minute. The media. They are staying in the chronology. So we have not got to the trial. We are just at the preliminaries in the chronology. Well, I, I, I was I was just going to to uh, identify on the the statement that was made somebody made about uh uh that now uh most people think that he was guilty am i right correct yeah and i, I was just stating because the the press just kept after it it just kept kept after uh the personality of O.J. Simpson, uh, basically uh, uh, kind of like uh, uh, tarnishing his character, you know, all through after the, the trial. And uh, they, if, I mean, he was, in, he was in the news in some way, fashion or, or t- television program or even a comedy uh, it, 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 every week <laughs> for years. Literally for years, following him around, uh, he was actually banned from certain towns and cities where he couldn't stay. Uh, you know, and, and normally that doesn't happen when a person is ruled innocent in a in a court of murder. Uh, it it in in a lot of cases the exact opposite uh, takes place when somebody is ruled uh, innocent of a uh, of a murder. And I mean, it was like relatively fast on the decision making on that. But, but he was treated, he was treated like, uh, uh, you know, that he was the murderer afterwards, is what I'm saying. And another thing about it, I, I, was, I was speaking with Thomas that I, I, I'm still kind of like astonished on how young everybody, everybody on the, on the, uh, cows was at the time when he, uh, he was doing all all of that, you know. I'm uh, hearing some people as young as five and six years old, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, th- that's my report. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. <clears throat> we will have lots to discuss in my just even from what we read this week. Like, forget after being acquitted. As soon as the news was reported, uh, it was, he is guilty, like immediately, (laughs) like, oh yeah, he did it. In fact, people who had evidence, 
that would tend to be exculpatory about the time when these murders happened and what they heard who swore up and down. Oh yeah, he did it. Well, I mean, the time that's so critical, the time you're, you're suggesting that these murders happened somewhere around 1035, maybe even 1040. Uh, do you know if that's the case? It would seem pretty impossible for this to be Mr. Simpson, for him to get back to his residence and not be a bloody mess and out of breath uh, by 1050. Like it's, it's kind of straining human possibility unless OJ Simpson knows some amazing tricks uh, at the age of 46. Um, Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. That's your testimony. We'll take it. But it would tend to suggest, yeah, he did not do this. He could not. He just wouldn't have had the time to, unless anybody out there who thinks, yes, I could, successfully kill two fit white people both of whom are younger than you uh, one of them 20 years younger than you and fit and in good shape if you think you could kill them by yourself with just a knife no gun uh, where apparently there's a physical struggle of some sort if you think you could kill them and get back across town in a vehicle and be clean nobody sees any blood on you clean dispose of the clothes and weapons in approximately 10 to 15 minutes. Let me know. I am not in that number. Whew, the race. Yeah. Man. Uh, Mo in Dallas. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to um, add one sentiment um, to what retired firefighter uh, touched on about OJ being vilified after he was proven innocent. Um, the murderer of, of Medgar Evers, Evers um, after he was proven innocent, you know, of, of, of that crime, like he was celebrated. And the only reason uh, it struck me is because it was many years prior, but it was around the same date. And that date is very significant in my life. That's why it stuck out to me. And so I'm sorry for that, but I just wanted to pin that into this episode. Mm. Much obliged. Uh, a number of, Convicted white killers are, in my view, Marilyn Manson, uh, uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, are treated better than, I mean, they have classes and things where people are like, wow, Ted Kaczynski, oh, it was terrible at bombing and killing folks. Who, and he did this, like, no equivalent, no doubt, did this. I'm like, wow, the environment is important. He was ahead of us, you know, he was thinking, like, I've heard people talk that way about Ted Kaczynski and things, but. Oh, Jason. Uh, uh. In, in fact, watch the FX, even based on what we're reading right now, watch the FX series and see how Mr. Simpson is portrayed and how this case is portrayed. It is an appalling display of white supremacy in every and people talking about you got younger generation I'm so glad that point was brought up you do have a whole generation of people they weren't even born uh, when this happened you know if you and people who are adults right who are not toddlers you got people who are 25 years old 24 years old they weren't even born uh, when this happened so for and I seriously doubt that a lot of these folks went back and read the transcripts and read all these books and all the rest they know like Kardashian and South Park and the Kardashians and of course he's guilty uh, and so now the FX series at ESPN that'll be their representation for this case and both of them are absolute white supremacy 
propaganda in every way. We will get the race card next week. Chapter seven. I'm so excited. Uh, we'll be here for neutralizing workplace racism uh, tomorrow. Mark Furman was accused of planting a gun. A black police officer worked with Mark Furman. She said he didn't do or say like he didn't call her a nigger or anything like that. But she stepped out of her vehicle and the shotgun where it wasn't where it was supposed to be. And she said it scared her. She said she thought he she suspected he did this on purpose to get her in trouble because that would violate regulations to have a firearm not properly secured. But that they have. Oh, my God. Mark flipping Furman neutralizing work. Imagine that. That's your coworker. I work with Mark Furman. <sighs> neutralizing workplace racism uh, tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. <sighs> neutral and it's tons it's not even just one it's quite a few reports of his co-workers being like man this dude I don't know if he planted something on OJ Simpson but he sure enough did such and such he planted a gun on me like neutralizing workplace racism Mark flipping Furman I cannot believe it Uh, much obliged for folks tuning in Uh, OJ everybody should be like if you're serious about counter racism you should be a quasi expert on the OJ Simpson trial. It is a remarkable study of racism, white supremacy, and you'll have a much better understanding of white people when you hear them talking about this case. Sobriety would be better. You never know when you'll get OJ Simpson, man. They th- we found a glove. We found some blood drops, man. Jill, Sh- Jill Shively said that you ran her off the road, man. Yeah, we got to bring you in for some questions. You never know when it could happen to you if you are intoxicated we imagine OJ Simpson stumbling in just did some ecstasy took a few bottles on the plane sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy in addition to being sober, I still say hunker down the vaccine, the Rona, so-called holiday season, crazy white people, lots of reasons to hunker down. If you got to go out, be vigilant. Uh, you do not know uh, if the white people or non-white people that are around you, if they're armed, they are if they're being hostile, loud, phew, we are not doing like public confrontations and getting into a shouting match with somebody white or non-white. You have no idea. This person could have a firearm. This person could have persons with them who also have firearms like no way, shape, form, no unnecessary risks as we head on into 2021. We are all about safety, vitality so that we can solve the problem. Universal man universal woman uh, if you got to go out again we're sober we're buckled if you are driving you are not on the cell phone uh, number one we need to be aware of what's happening around us can't be you know texting and talking all the rest two again we are trying to mark flipping Furman <laughs> we are trying to minimize contact just the little things that we can, he said, Hey, you can do all that. I make up a reason <laughs> like, Hey, you're in a car. That's too nice. You're with a white woman. You're with a white man. 
Negra period. I'll make up a reason to, to stop you. So just doing the little things that we can being sober, being buckled, not on the phone, little things to keep the firmans of the world as far away as possible. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person replace white supremacy with justice no name calling so sorry OJ Simpson I thought you were guilty all these years my bad 100% innocent Cal signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim brother a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.